shows. <laughs> hey, George Takei, who's on today's show? Seth Rogen. <laughs> oh, my. I love those curls. I love the cute, cuddly teddy bear type. <laughs> what a bear. <laughs> okay, George, I mean, it's a human resources issue here. We don't need you to talk about the gas. Oh, my. <laughs> call you over the weekend, Robin, but time got away from me. I was busy, and I was like, I gotta call Robin. There were some things I wanted to discuss with you. Nothing important. I mean, it's just usual gibberish that I have, but <laughs> it got away from me. Just... Well, how did the weekend get away from you? What were you doing? What was making you so busy? I was busy. You know how you're busy. <laughs> I'm busy, too. I was busy. I was... I don't know. I was... Uh, busy with the show there were things going on uh, uh, now that the pandemic seems to be loosening up a bit was doing some work around here getting like uh, the house fixed up it was just crazy stuff so i mean everything just one thing after another and then mother's day talking to the yeah, kids I didn't expect just... to hear from your mom mother's day i'm sure you spent the day with your mom hello <laughs> oh I, just, see, I just saw a whole thing where this guy, uh, his mother lost her job at 72 at a hotel. Yeah. And he decided that uh, his job now was to, he's a journalist, and he was going to just bring joy into her life. And uh, so they did road trips. Oh. And uh, he learned, she learned to uh, hip hop dance. Mm. And he took her, they jumped out of a plane together. And so they just were checking off things on her bucket list. And at mm. the end of the whole thing, the mom was sitting there with him saying, you know, he didn't have to do all that for me. All a mother wants is to spend time with her son. And I thought, really? Mm. <laughs> Every mother? Sounds, a, <laughs> sounds like my worst nightmare. I don't know. I, like I, On Mother's Day, I, you know, of course, call my mom and. You know, I used to send her stuff, but or bring her stuff, but that stopped. She, I got yelled at for giving her flowers because <laughs> my daughter brought her flowers, and um, you know, she brought her grandma flowers. I went, oh, and I used to get grandma flowers, but she started yelling at me. These flowers, please don't send me flowers anymore. They have bugs. <laughs> They're little bugs flying all over my house. Oh and my we're goodness. suffering so with the bugs. Your father was eating and he couldn't. Uh, he could. There were little bugs in his coffee. Please, no more flowers. So then I started sending chocolates on Mother's Day. Don't send me chocolates, please. What am I going to do with those? We don't eat so much. It's too much for us. I was just like, Happy you know what? Mother's Day. <laughs> I just send a card now and I'm done. It's, I, I, I wonder me... if you sent a card because I said to myself, okay, he can't yeah. send her a gift. I wonder if he still sends a card. And she's like, I got your lovely card. It was very nice. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's just Mother's Day. It's always like I called my mom and I go, 
hey, you know, mom, I just want you to know I love you and you are a terrific mom. I, you know, I don't get heavy with it. I just, you know, I always say so you were, you, you're the best mom a man could ask for. That's what I say. Okay. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not going to get into the politics. <laughs> you're of like it. a Hallmark card. <laughs> yeah, right. I just go you, and then she goes. So then I just expect her to say, "Oh, thank you." And she goes, "Listen, I tried the best I could, <laughs> and I know you're with that psychiatrist, and I don't know what you're talking about there. And everyone's with these psychiatrists." <laughs> And uh, I got. She didn't need one. <laughs> no, no. She's healthy. Oh, and then she started in with psychiatrists and uh, whether or not my kids go to the psychiatrist. I said, Mom, I'm a big believer in psychiatrists. I'm not threatened by a psychiatrist. I know, but I did the best I could. I said, I said you were the best mother a man could ask for. Can we leave it at that? <laughs> I mean, it's like. It's torturous. <laughs> Even when you're trying to compliment her. Right. It I just, wor- like, works out badly. I, I said, yeah, exactly. I, you're, and listen, it was all bullshit. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there are better mothers out there. But I went, for me, I, I just want to say something nice to my mother on Mother's Day and get, get on with it. You got to say something. <laughs> I can't just go, hello, and then hang up the phone. So I go, Mom, you are the best mother a man could ever ask for. Oh, we <laughs> stuff it. You know, like, it's crazy. Yeah, Saturday Night Live could give you a complex because, you know, they're all on every year with their mothers. Did you see the opening of yeah. Saturday Night Live? I, I loved it because I was shocked how those comedians, there was about six of them that look exactly like their mothers. Like their parents, yeah. I thought it, at first it was a joke. I thought it was somehow they split like the casted and, people who look that good uh, or I, look that much like them. Yeah, I thought it was Kate McKinnon dressed up as her own mother, and then <laughs> I didn't. I don't know the other woman's name, uh, the the heavier gal. I don't know her name, but uh, Kate, she Katie came out something. Yeah, eighty Bryant. Eighty Bryant. Yeah, eighty. Yeah, funny. You know, I don't. I don't know everybody. Yeah, I, I dawned on me too that I don't really know everyone's name except for Pete and. Uh, and then Colin and Michael Che, and there's a couple of people I know. Keenan. Keenan. Yeah, I know Keenan. But 80 came out, and I thought, oh, that's her in a gray wig. I mean, it was startling. Because <laughs> they, they looked were, so much alike, yeah. Yes, they were identical. And then there was another comedian looked exactly like her mother, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, is this a bit, or is this... Because that would have been funny if Pete was dressed up as his mother, and <laughs> I, I would have made more of a joke out of it. But I don't right, know. but they had but the it was interesting. moms on. That's been a thing they've done for the last several oh. Mother's Days. They had the actual moms, I and then see you Elon. can't. You look at uh, Elon Musk's mom, and you go, "Well, that must be the greatest mom in the world." By the way, his mom looked super classy. Like, are they yeah. real? Were they? Was that a wealthy family Elon Musk came from? I don't she, know his background, but boy, was she! Yeah, she looked like she had been born in a manor or something. And she uh, looked like she was born in France. People in yeah. France are really good looking, and they dress really dress super well. well. Yeah, his mom looked super put together. Like you could tell that she was. She looked like somebody, you know, but. Um, yeah, I didn't really get, you know, I, I, I should have watched the whole Saturday Night Live, but 
I didn't get a chance to. I, I again, I was just so busy, but and plus we had a it was Sunday night, and I realized I had taped Saturday Night Live, and everyone would be talking about Elon Musk. But then I saw American Idol was on, and I have to watch that show. That's my show. <laughs> that and Feud. I watched Feud and American Idol. So I, I had to see that So because they were going into the top five. They were going to whittle out two kids, and I need to be involved in that. And there's voting oh involved. <laughs> oh, listen, I was a judge on TV, uh, Robin. You, you forget. So, uh, But I watched the monologue that Elon Musk did because the, I saw it in the paper. There was a bunch of controversy that some of the cast of Saturday Night Live didn't want Elon Musk to be the host. Oh, and, really? And, I didn't see that. Oh, it was a whole big thing. And then... um I think it was Michael Che who's going to be on our show, but he, he was interviewed and he goes, I don't know. I think it was him. I, I hope I'm crediting the right comedian with this, but I read so many things about the controversy. Michael Che said, I don't know. It's with white people. They seem to hate their billionaires. I thought this was really funny. He said, um, black people love their billionaires. You hear like uh, Tyler Perry or Oprah's coming in your house. Yeah. And, and you're just, you're, wow. That's you're excited. Fantastic. You're not like. Screw them. <laughs> and I started thinking about what Michael Chase said, and I said, yeah, white people really do seem to hate anyone who's successful. I think maybe white people think they're all supposed to be successful, and then when they see someone who is successful, they get jealous or something. Yeah, I don't know like what Elon Musk took their stuff or something. Yeah, yeah. Like you took <laughs> – that was my rocket ship to go to Mars. <laughs> but I don't know why there was controversy that some of the members of Saturday Night Live felt that Elon Musk was not a good uh, selection for host because I think some of his politics didn't line up. From what I read in the paper, they were claiming that he was a um, – he downplayed the coronavirus. In the yes, well, he was against the mask at one point and then changed his mind and uh, a few other things. I forget I exactly. You know, I don't pay much attention to what anybody says anymore. People are so crazy. Right, but people yeah, are crazy. He, yeah, and he was one of those people who was downplaying Corona <laughs> and saying it wasn't that big a deal. Oh, good. Well, anyway, so I guess some of the cast didn't want him on, and I don't know what it was. But so I, I put on the uh, beginning of it, and I saw his monologue. And I thought for a guy who isn't an entertainer, who's just a guy who, you know, is uh, the head of a company that sends people, is trying to send people to Mars and make rocket ships and certainly makes these amazing electric cars. I thought the guy was pretty loose as a goose. and, and Well, he somewhat, is loose as a goose. That's Yeah. <laughs> I thought he was pretty good. I don't know. I mean, I didn't see well, him in Well, I sketch. thought it was fun because yeah. he's not an actor or right. a performer. And End it was sentence. really interesting to watch him interacting in that space. But, you know, Elon is known for saying crazy things and doing crazy things. What is, what is that name? Elon? I mean, it, well, that is, goes back to who is his mother and why does she look that way? He's got All a right. name like Elon. Elon Musk's mother started modeling at 15. Oh, that makes sense. Ah. That is an attractive older woman. Yeah. He was a finalist in the Miss South Africa competition. She's a dietitian and nutritionist with two master's degrees. Yeah, I, I knew I knew she'd be somebody hot. Yeah, she didn't look no. like a mom. No. She didn't <laughs> look like my mom. Like moms. <laughs> yeah. My mom's tits are down to her knees. You know, that's a mom. <laughs> she wasn't modeling at 15. <laughs> I want to say to Elon, you didn't have a mom. If, if any woman who modeled at 15 isn't a mom.
<laughs> yeah, you had a model. You didn't have a mom. Yeah, my mom was like, my mom always reminded me that she looked like a real woman. <laughs> that Playboy magazine is full of, uh, it's not realistic. You know, real women look like me and your sister. Oh, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Because I was into Playboy. My but I'm just like, saying, me and your sister. Like, why is she throwing Alan in there? What's she got to do with anything? She's not. I don't know. My sister, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why she threw her in there. My sister looked good. I don't know why yes. she had a, Yeah. What is she saying? Yeah. I have hair coming out of my nipples. What is this? <laughs> That's the sign of a real woman. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I was into my mother got me a subscription to Playboy at thirteen. She said, "There's nothing wrong with the human body and looking at it, but believe you me, those women in there, there's nothing real about them, and that's <laughs> not a real. Those women are freaks. Real women look like me and your sister." Well, why get you a magazine of freaks? What is, well, I don't even I understand demanded it. the rationale. I'm getting this for you, but these people aren't real. I had to have it. But my point is, why would a mother give it to you if she has such a problem with the people in it? I didn't have a problem with it. I just told my son that those are not real women are covered in dirt and have big <laughs> folds and ash. And giant labias majora minor. <laughs> I showed my son what real breasts look like. And let me tell you. And real women have cellulite. And that's that. Okay, Mom, I got it. <laughs> I think I'm going to sleep with guys now. I think those women would women would have been very complimented if they had heard her uh -huh. calling them freaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She meant that they were... <laughs> really weird you know like like that no women look like, like they, they just, weren't they're not the of norm. this world yes right. they were from somewhere else real women have a full load of discharge in their panties at the end <laughs> of the day believe you me a nice yellow discharge oh okay real i'm gonna go throw up panties there's none of this <laughs> pantyless stuff <laughs> real women wear huge panties like me <laughs> okay. My mom had the biggest panties. I get like if I was ever on an uh, like a desert island, I could have built a sailboat with those panties. <laughs> you could like, have sailed. Gilligan needed your mom's panties. <laughs> oh, if my mom was on the island, they would they would have either had a parachute, <laughs> big giant panties. What's with those little tiny panties? Those are uncomfortable, <laughs> and I need to breathe. I have full cotton panties. Thong. I What's mean, a thong? What is that? I don't want something <laughs> sticking up my ass. <laughs> Let me tell you, those women in Playboy aren't. Uh, they're freaks. They're not real women. Real women make you want to puke when they're naked. <laughs> Let me tell you. If you're not vomiting when you're with a woman, then you're not with reality. <laughs> uh, oh, really? So Oh, but anyway, uh, getting back to Saturday Night Live, I don't know what all the, you know, hoopla was about. I mean, when they have uh, entertainers on as hosts, I don't know what all of them, their politics are. Well, he did point out that OJ had hosted the show twice. So. Yeah. <laughs> OJ. 
And, you know, you shouldn't judge him by one action. You know, he, you know, all of a sudden Mm. he says, don't wear a mask. And he's a, you know, terrible person. OJ did the show, too. And uh, he only, you know, maybe murdered somebody once. And the next thing you know, he's a killer. (laughs) I thought that was a great joke. I have something um, sort of OJ-related in a weird way that you mentioned that OJ makes oh, yeah? me think of this. Yeah, well, um, over the weekend, I got a um, first person to email me was Dan Foreman. You remember Dan Foreman of who produced course. our old TV show? Uh, Dan wrote me, said, up. Oh, one of our frequent guests died. Tawny Katane died over the weekend. Tawny yes, Katane. Yes, I saw that. And I was sad to hear that because uh, she, you know, 59, look, yeah. 59, when we when we uh, had our old TV show back in the day, she would um, she would do the show. And, and as you know, there were very few people who had any kind of notoriety or fame who would do <laughs> our show. So the fact that Tony Contain came on. It was like um, the Beatles were coming on because we couldn't get any celebrities to do our show. But uh, Tawny Katane died over the weekend and they did not announce the cause of death. But when I was reading her obituary, I felt very sad because it sounded like uh, she had some real ups and downs and some trouble with substance. And, you know, I was just sort of sad about it. But she was some beauty. I mean, um, first of all, I'll give you a couple of facts. Let's do a little obituary for Tawny Katane. May she rest in peace. Uh, everyone knew her from those White Snake videos. There must have been about three or four White Snake videos in a row where Tony Katane would dance around in a see-through outfit. I mean, talk about um, real women versus uh, fantasy women. <laughs> this Tony Katane was so beautiful and so sexy. She was a, uh, I guess when she was younger, she was something of a ballerina dancer or she she practiced dance and by the you know by the time we saw her on MTV you were like oh my god this is the woman so you know we think when we see a woman like that her life's going to be incredible i oh, don't know yeah. why it's be but, beautiful she has you know. no cares or woes her real name was robin you didn't know this i didn't know this her real name was robin quivers no which it is was so not. no no her real name was julie katane julie katane yes. i don't know where tawny came from i don't know but what a brilliant move like being yeah. hot and being named Tawny. Like, what is Tawny? Tawny. Like, I, I, you know, even her name was like, Tawny was like a, like Tawny Kitten was almost her name. Like Tawny, <laughs> Tawny Katane. Mama Lucian. Yeah. Whatever that means. I don't think that, what was the name there? Julie Katane. Julie Katane would not have had as good a career. <laughs> no. No, she wouldn't. You're absolutely me so tawny. <laughs> Me love you long time. Her real name was Julie Katane. And, you know, I forgot about this. Her big break was in the movie Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks. That's I didn't remember right. that. That was the first thing we saw her do. She played Tom Hanks's uh, fiance. And then, like, you know, after the movie, nothing much was happening. She did a couple of guest spots on Married with Children and Seinfeld. Um, she had even done a, she starred in a Jack LaLanne commercial. I'd like to see that. I bet oh that was hot. God. She was probably in like a fucking leotard or something back in the day. But she had studied ballet and gymnastics. That's where that fabulous body came from. But uh, when MTV hit and Whitesnake put her in Here I Go Again, we all remember that song. Here I go again on my own. That was it. You 
can't listen to this song without thinking about Tawny Detain. At least I can. And then White Snake said, fuck this. If, if th- that put them on the map, they've said every yeah. video from now on, that's it. Where, you know, the, there was, um, is this love still of the night and deeper the love and the same formula. You see the band, David Coverdale was standing there like a woman. He had bigger hair than Tawny <laughs> and he would pose into that. My, I, I went back yesterday just to remember her and watch the videos and he's standing there with a look on his face, like, like dressed up like a girl. Really, he had right, big, lo- yeah. you know, he was like a he was like a pretty girl. He had gorgeous locks too. <laughs> yeah, and then Tawny would be rolling around on a fucking car, yes, doing splits, and every outfit was see through with the titties and the whole thing. Mod own, what a fucking what a fucking video. <laughs> And then, of course, everyone said, well, you two should be married. You're two, two of the best-looking people in the world. And they tried and they, it. They did. Two years. Can you imagine? How do you marry for two years? Like, what the hell must have That's been going on? That's hardly getting out of the church. Two years. Like, what a disaster. Uh, oh, and also... before the- big hair is not a reason to marry two people off. No, and they never had kids together, those two, because those kids would have had fabulous hair. <laughs> Um, also another note before the white snake videos, Tawny appeared in rats video back for more. You remember rat? Oh, we I had those guys that. on the show. Yes. Yeah. And she'd been dating, uh, the guitarist. If you remember the guy's name, Robin Crosby in rat, remember oh, him? Big right. guy. Yeah. She dated him. Okay. So, um, anyway, to sum up Tawny Katane, I had Tawny on the show a few times. Her first appearance was in the early nineties. And then we didn't see her for a couple of years. And this is fascinating. I didn't remember any of this. She was co-hosting a family-friendly show on ABC called America's Funniest People. ABC put it in her contract that she couldn't do my show. It was in her contract. Listen to this clip. It was in my contract. Right. Your name was in my contract. Are you kidding? I thought you were lying to, to me. No, it said it, it, in my morals clause <laughs> that I could not talk to Howard Stern. Wow. You're kidding me. No. What there a you reputation go. we have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, ABC. <laughs> Can you imagine you are not allowed to do the Howard Stern show is in her contract? I, you know, there have been a couple of people. I remember um, the great beauty. Carmen Electra used to do our show yeah. all the time. And then she got a nice break. She got um, a makeup contract of some sort on TV. And I didn't see her for a while. And somehow it got back to us. Gary had called her, said, hey, you're in town. Do you want to come on the show? And I think she, too, was told, I don't know if it was in her contract, but if she was told, you're not going on there if you want to be right. our spokesperson. And so uh, she couldn't do our show for a while. So here's something that Gary reminded me about. I forgot about this. I saw, I saw Tawny Katane. There was another time, fast forward. I saw her at uh, Donald Trump's wedding. I went to Donald Trump's wedding to Marla Maples. His uh, second marriage. And uh, it turns out I, I and O.J. Simpson was there, too. And Tawny was there. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I've run a picture with you and Donald and O.J., right? I have a picture of me. Yeah, I think so. I have I, there was some picture taken of me and O.J. I put that on the back of my book. Right. One of my books. So so 
I'm standing there, and Gary reminded me of this, and now I, now it comes back to my memory. I'm talking to Tawny, and Tawny says to me, uh, I, I said, oh, look, there's O.J., O.J. Simpson. This is, of course, before the, you know, the, the murder trial and everything. And I said, do you know O.J.? Do I have that right, Gary? I said, do you know O.J.? Right. And Tawny said, no, I don't, I don't really know him that well. And O.J. came over. And uh, he just grabbed Tawny, he dipped her, and started making out with her. What? Kissing her. Yeah. And it turned out they were there together. And she told you she didn't know him. Yeah, they were she joking. Was joking. They were joking. They were pulling a joke oh, out. But, okay. Howard, I don't know if you remember, because I just remembered this this morning. The rumor was, this was a rumor, was that, you remember that first uh, 911 call with OJ when he and Nicole got into a huge argument? Yeah. The rumor was that Nicole found a receipt for some jewelry, expensive jewelry. And the rumor was it was something that OJ had bought for Tony Katane. Wow. So they were involved in all sorts of wackiness. Yeah, I don't know what was going on that day, but uh, so Tony and OJ seemed to know each other. Yeah, and then uh, eventually she admitted (laughs) to me that they fooled around a bit. And Tawny didn't believe that OJ committed the the murder. She couldn't wrap her head around it. Here it is from my show on... um, Whatever day, I don't know what I it was. I still cannot Believe wrap it. my brain around this, Howard. You can't. It's I impossible. Can't. It is impossible. Well, people for say me. that who knew OJ. Yes. It just doesn't seem it, possible. No, it just doesn't. Yeah. But he did it, trust me. Well, if he shot her. Then I would be sitting here going, oh my God, I cannot believe my old friend OJ right. killed Nicole. But you mean you can't imagine him taking a knife? No, I can't. I can't. I just can't. Standing across the street and shooting her, like I, then I would sit here and go, well, okay, maybe so. Never raised a hand to you? Never raised a hand to me. Never. Mm. Well, all I know is <laughs> when I was, now I, now I have the shutters because I realized I was sitting and talking to Tawny and OJ spotted me with Tawny. I could have been in big trouble. You could have been. You're hey. right. <laughs> you Stun. could have been the uh, collateral damage. Why are Damn. you talking to Tawny? Uh, I, she's a friend. A friend? Get away from Tawny. Good thing he didn't <laughs> get angry with me. He was in a good mood that day. Yeah, he was happy. We got Thank a problem. God. <laughs> you don't want him on a day no, he's got a problem. No idea. Going on with the obituary, when Tawny was on the show in 2003, she was in the middle of a court battle with her husband, who was Chuck Finley, if you remember. He was a Major League Baseball player. Okay. Uh, evidently, they had a very tumultuous relationship. There were tremendous allegations of uh, domestic violence. Tawny got hooked on Vicodin. They had a huge fight in their car. Chuck accused Tawny of kicking him in the face. Tawny actually got arrested and went to jail. And was very open about it on our show. I, I forgot all of this. Here we go. I do not want people to sit here and think that I think Chuck is this horrible, horrible person for doing what he did. You didn't sound like you liked him too much. Well, no. I mean, it, what happened? It sounded like he was, the way you make it sound, you make him sound like he enslaved you, he beat you, well, you went on Vicodin because of him. Well, first of all, you don't even know what happened in the car. Second of all, the Vicodin was my choice and how I felt that I needed to deal with um, what happened in the my, car? Well, what happened in the car was he grabbed my, I was in a fetal position with my legs up in the car and I was crying and he <laughs> grabbed my ankle and he grabbed it up towards the ceiling. Nothing like marriage. I was in the car oh, with my husband I'm in the fetal you. position. Yeah, yeah, I mean. And he was shaking you around? me around and I was screaming, please let go, let go. And he wouldn't let go. And I picked my leg up and I kicked him. 
and that's what happened and <laughs> and it got completely out of control and i called the police and the police came and, and arrested you and arrested me of course this is funny to me because she had no problem with oj none but look well, at what's chuck, going on with chuck finley <laughs> in the court documents chuck <laughs> finley know. accused tawny of being suicidal having fits of rage and keeping knives under her bed i mean i don't know what's true but tawny gave us her side of the story and here it is. It was kind of a very passive-aggressive relationship where he would just totally ignore me. He would leave the house, and, and I would just, I'd walk around going, Chuck, where are you? And next thing I know, he would have been gone for two hours. And Were you satisfied sexually? Um, no. No. <sighs> no, I mean, he just, he didn't, I mean, I didn't feel beautiful. I didn't feel pretty. I didn't feel like I was worthy of anything. I mean, I, I tell you, it was the most, it was the darkest, you know, and half of it now, was Is he going to be fault. pissed at you for saying all this stuff? Oh, I'm sure he is. But like I was saying to you earlier, I have to, I went through so much, uh, so much inner stuff of my own in the last year and a half that I have to take responsibility and say, well, why did I allow myself to stay? And, um, you know, he was doing a lot of traveling and, and, um, you know, and I just got deeper and deeper into the Vicodin, and that was the only thing that allowed that that gave myself dead in the, the pain. The dead in the pain. Meanwhile, I'm sitting Yikes. there going, "Shit, she looked so hot that day," and I was like, "Oh fuck, she's not sexually satisfied." I mean, I got a penis. Well, this is the thing: she's the white snake girl, and mm. she's not sexually satisfied. And I'm like, so "There's only one man giving it to her the way she needs it." There's one very hideous, ugly man who could make her feel beautiful, and that's me. I should really give myself to her. Because one thing about me and a beautiful woman, I will make them feel beautiful. Anyway, she was probably a little bit too open during that interview. The domestic violence case against her was dismissed a month later, but on the condition... Oh, one condition was the judge forced her to apologize in writing to the court for the comments she made on my show. Can you imagine... Again, somebody, she's punished for being on this show. <laughs> yeah, people get punished. Uh, Tawny went on to do several of those celebrity celebrity reality TV shows. She was on Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, The Surreal Life. She appeared on Bosch to get breast implants removed. Tawny Katane, dead at 59. Thank you, Tawny, for always coming on our show. And uh, very lovely. And, yeah, um, sweet person. Sweet person, I'm telling you. I remember... Uh, she just had a, a really good sense of humor, very open, uh, very beautiful, 59 years old. When I, when I read this stuff about her life, I feel sad for her, you know, I mean, it sounds like. Right. I try to tell you that every beautiful woman isn't living the beautiful life, but you, mm. you just can't get over the fantasy. Nope. I will. I refuse to listen. To you. Nah, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Are you still talking about that? Ah, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, evidently, the, the legend goes that David Coverdale wanted Claudia Schiffer to be in the White Snake video, and really, David Coverdale stopped by the director's house to go over storyboards, and he brought Tawny along. They knew each other, and when the director saw Tawny, he said, "You're her. You're the girl. That's it. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom shakalaka." Where's David Coverdale, by the way? He he made a statement. I read it online. It was like, you know, hey, sorry to hear about it. I, I'm sorry for her two daughters. And, you know, he said all the right things. 
Tain um, is a Jewish name. The Jewish people love pointing out that Tawny was Jewish. Because nobody thought Tawny was Jewish. Right. You know, they, they want, um, they have an image of what a Jewish girl should look like. And Tawny <laughs> didn't fit it. You know how anti-Semitic people can be. Right. She can't right. be Jewish. They think all Jewish girls look like me. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great Jewish beauties. Absolutely. By the way, speaking of Jewish beauty, Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen will be on our show today. The guy wrote a book. Uh, I love it. <laughs> it's like um, I know he took three years to write it because I believe he wrote it. He didn't use a ghostwriter or a uh, person to help him. I mean, he just wrote it. It's interesting Very, you should say that because I'm thinking to myself, how could he write a book? And then when you say it took three years, it makes sense. Well, anything good takes years. You know, writing a book is very difficult. And, you know. But things, Seth doesn't take off time just to write a book. Well, he has a He's lot going on. He's got all these other yeah. things going on. That's right. That's right. So it took him three years, and uh, I read it, and I, I was laughing the whole time, and we'll talk to him later in the show about it. So, uh, you know, that'll be in a couple hours when I'm half unconscious. We'll, we'll talk to <laughs> Seth about his new book, and there's some really funny stories in it that I didn't even know. And it's a very candid and open book. That's what I like about it. It um, He tells a couple of stories in there. I'm not going to get into it now, but he tells a couple of stories in there that are just it's fantastic. So, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to talking to him. Tomorrow, uh, Emily Blunt will be on the show. She stars in, uh, they made a sequel. She and her husband made a sequel to The Quiet Place. Place Quiet Place. I watched it. It's fabulous. I, I loved it. it. Yeah, it was really I good. I saw it, too. But they made me go through so much to get this movie. Oh, tell it me about like, it. was like... Uh, I, you know, I know, I said, I feel like a criminal. I, right. I mean, they really don't trust me with this movie. <laughs> That's right. Listen, uh, <laughs> I had a similar, it took 45 minutes before we could watch the movie. Let's put it that way. They have such secure, you know what? My issue was my equipment. I uh-huh. told you when, when I built my house, I put all the money into my audio video equipment. Uh-huh. I went downstairs, and I have a little home theater and everything, and I turned it on, and, of course, it didn't work. <laughs> and Beth, and you see That's how you laugh? the best. The, when does Beth, it work? It never works. And then and Beth starts laughing, just like you're laughing right now, and it cuts through me. It cuts through, through me so painfully. It's like, it's like, it, it's like oh, because she knows how much money I spent. Yeah. And she knows how important this is to be. I, I said, you know. I feel really like a big star. They're sending me a quiet place too. I'm going to see it before everyone else because I'm going to speak to Emily Blunt. This is a movie highly anticipated. The first one was a big success. And the equipment, the sound came on. I couldn't get the video. It was close. (laughs) And then I go through my tirade. I said to my wife, this is television. This has been invented already. It should work. (laughs) It shouldn't be this hard. And then that went on for a while. So then we had to move locations and find um, my crappy old TV. Just the regular old setup. Regular old TV. Yeah, that's how I watched it. <laughs> I, you know, this, this, all this equipment I had put in was useless. Well, and, they um, 
I don't have that system, and usually they just send me some link to a streaming service yes. to watch movies. Right. They would not do that this time. Right. It was like, doesn't she have the pick system? Then we could get it to her. If she doesn't have the pick system, we're not going to send it to her. And then finally, they said, okay, we will have a messenger bring oh. her a DVD. Oh, my God. And stand outside your house? Well, she didn't stand outside the house. She left, but they demanded that I destroy the DVD and take a picture of it. Wow. And send it back to them. <laughs> like a criminal. <laughs> yeah. Let's say hi to Jeff from California. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Hey, now, Howard. Hey, Robin. Hey, now. Hey now. Hey. Um, yeah, I just super excited about Seth Rogen coming on the show today. Uh, love all his movies. Um, I even went out and bought some of his new weed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, uh, he has a whole weed situation going on, legal weed out in California. What type of weed did you buy from uh, Seth Rogen? Uh, this is Pancake Ice. <laughs> they, right. I think it's pretty strong. Um, you know what? What if, I, uh, what if I, I smoke a little bit right now on the air? In honor go of ahead. Seth coming. Go ahead. Go ahead. Give me a uh, give me an evaluation. Me, but yeah. I watch that? all these I watch all these unboxing videos online. And, um, <laughs> go ahead. Let's hear what you yeah, think of it. Let's let's un let's unbox this this right now. Hold on one second. I'll light it up. second jeff Am you I say i all right do i sound exactly like seth rugan <laughs> jeff how many hits you took one hit and i gotta tell you I your voice sounds I, I took one hit and I, I i'm really very high i'm in a complete <laughs> state of panic right now actually <laughs> i know i I'm wonder freaking the fuck out <laughs> because how? my voice sounds Boom shakalaka. <laughs> Just like Seth Rogen. <laughs> so you're wow. telling me this is amazing. This is why the FDA needs to test weed. You're saying you took one hit of this pancake ice or whatever it's called. Is it pancake ice? I yeah, now I have a fucking beard and I'm wearing glasses. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck is going on right now. <laughs> Boom shakalaka. <laughs> Well, you're not high. I mean, you are high, but uh, you do sound amazingly like Seth. And and I'm yeah, wondering, I, 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 yeah, I'm wondering, is this a feature of his marijuana or is it a bug in the system? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm I'm, I'm 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 starting to get a little bit paranoid. <laughs> you know what you should do? I just had a thought. You should try writing a movie right now. Hello, Seth. I mean, Jeff. I mean, I think, I think he got cut off. I heard a little I he, pop. Yeah, I, I think he's so high. He just. <laughs> hey, Jeez, pal, if what, you're still what listening. What a side effect. <laughs> I know. Whatever you do, don't don't smoke Snoop Dogg's uh, weed unless you <laughs> want to be a rapper. There you go. Well, how do you like that? That That's amazing. Well, you know, you made a great point. You wonder, can you write movies now? Yeah. <laughs> there you go.
There's a uh, a couple of things I wanted to say. I was really bummed out over the weekend over this Chinese rocket. <laughs> Excuse me, I just threw up. I was going to say, that sounded oh. wet. <laughs> oh, I'm falling apart. Oh, dear. Um, You know. You were bummed out by the Chinese rocket? Yeah, you know, I didn't realize how many satellites are up in space. I know this country puts up tremendous amount of satellites, and it turns out other countries are too, and people are putting up rockets and... Well, this rocket was supposed to be carrying stuff to help them make their own space station up there. Yeah, I mean, great. Go ahead. But then the Chinese government was kind of like, hey, um, everyone was questioning, where is this rocket debris going to fall? Because we're going to have a rocket that was going to break up in space. Right. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. And so it was breaking up and falling back to Earth. Yeah, and they were kind of like, look, we're pretty sure that the debris is going to fall into the Indian Ocean. We don't know for sure. It could fall on land, but probably not. And probably could just land on somebody, but we don't think so. (laughs) Because when debris falls from space, it could kill you. You know, it could fall on your house. It could fall on a plane. It could, there's good odds that you will die. In fact, I heard one scientist talk about the weight of it. He said it's like three tractor trailers. Falling out of the sky. That's how much uh, debris was going to reach the Earth's surface. Yeah, I mean, we hear debris and we, you know, we think, you know, debris sounds like the garbage in your garbage can flying out. And evidently (laughs) when it falls, here, let me see. China insisted the risk was low. And I'm like, can we really trust the Chinese government? (laughs) Haven't I mean, they always been just forthcoming and, and really yeah. accurate? Uh, but it turns out the bulk of the rocket, I'm reading from the article, this is from uh, the BBC News. Remains of a Chinese rocket that was hurtling back towards Earth have crashed into the Indian Ocean. Thank you. The bulk of the rocket was destroyed as it re-entered the atmosphere, but state media reported that debris landed just west of the Maldives, wherever that is. The Maldives out. I never heard the of Maldives. It. Maldives. <laughs> Maldive with you. Maldive is a good G- DJ name. Maldive with you. <laughs> there have been uh, days of speculation over where the rocket might land, and U.S. officials and other experts warned its return risk potential casualties. And I was just like, fuck you. Like, if you send a rocket up, there's got to be some sort of universal law about how you don't get to have it crash into the earth. Well, I, again, was listening to a scientist said, this happens way too much. I was like, really? I yeah. only know of one other, but this yeah. is happening. And so that's what freaked me out because I was like, what the fuck? You know, what is that? What do you mean? You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in my house going, I, I don't want debris falling on me from a Chinese rock. Now, how did Howard die? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He was sitting at home <laughs> eating his uh, Metamucil and, and yogurt. And uh, unfortunately, the Chinese debris fell on his head. <laughs> got, got clumped by a piece of rocket from yeah, China. I, I slept under my kitchen table Saturday night. I was so nervous. <laughs> Anyway, it turned out fine, which, you know, was great. Lucky, but that's luck. Yeah. Luck. Yeah. They weren't exactly sure where it would fall. Then they told us, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm worried about something more. Future? And what? 
future? Well, actually, I'm worried about right now. Seems that the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans have better hackers than we do. Oh, yeah, they get into everything. I, I saw that over the weekend. Yeah, and I'm like, are we losing the hacking war? Yes, yes. We don't have hackers? We have them, but the other guys seem to be, you know, I mean, if they're we not have them, good. I... they can't find these attacks before they happen. And, no. and, and they always say, oh, we're going to retaliate. But I never hear the results of any retaliation. Here, you want to really worry? I read this article a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, and I meant to read it to you on the air. Okay. It was so bleak. And in fact, the headline is why spy agencies say the future is bleak. And this is from the New York Times editorial board. Listen to this. Just listen to the first couple of paragraphs and it'll All freak right. you out about the future. And, and, and it really bums me out for my kids and what the world's going to look like. But let's not sugarcoat anything. Everything's fucked up. Climate change, technology, disease and financial crisis will pose big challenges for the world. An intelligence report concludes. Now, let me emphasize, this is from our intelligence agencies. These are the guys who knew COVID was coming. They know uh-huh. they know in advance. They know every fucking disaster that's coming. These are, this is what they're paid to do. All right. Every four years at the start of a new administration, American American intelligence agencies put out global trends, a weighty assessment of where the world seems headed over the next two decades. In 2008, for example, the report warned about the potential emergence of a pandemic originating in East Asia and spreading rapidly around the world. These guys knew in 2008 that this pandemic we're having was coming. And, of course, the Obama administration had planned for it. They put together a team of guys who know about this shit and how to keep it out of our country. But then when Trump got in office, we don't need that. We don't need it. You knew. That's a a bunch of government spending we don't need to be doing. He got rid of it because Obama was into it. This is what I'm talking about. That's how I don't know. I don't understand how people think that what we went through for four years was good for the country. I just don't get it. That's the number one agency you want for your children to be around. This this agency that predicts what's going to happen and then a group of scientists who can keep the coronavirus out of our country before it yes. gets here. They had successfully done it before. problems before they no. become problems. Right. All right. So the latest report, Global Trends 2040. In other words, right around the corner, what the world's going to look like. They find that the... Um, Okay, the latest report, Global Trends 2040, released last week by the National Intelligence Council, finds that the pandemic has proved to be the most significant singular global global disruption since World War II with medical, political, and security implications that will reverberate for years. Um, The world envisioned in the 144-page report, ominously subtitled, A More Contested World, is ravaged by changing climate, aging populations, disease, financial crisis, and technologies that divide more than they unite. All straining societies and generating shocks that could be catastrophic. The gap between the challenges and the institutions meant to deal with them continues to grow. Meaning we're so divided as a country that um, putting money into these agencies that will help prevent this disaster, it it can't... 
we can't get the politicians to agree on all this. Thank you. Um, the politics within states are likely to grow more volatile and contentious, and no region, ideology, or governance system seems immune or have the answers. At the international level, it will be a world increasingly shaped by China's challenge to the United States. Listen to this. Large segments of the global population are becoming wary of institutions and governments that they see as unwilling or unable to address their needs. People are gravitating to familiar and like-minded groups for community and security, including ethnic, religious, and cultural identities. So what's our world going to look like in 2040? We're, is, we're falling behind. Yeah, we're going to be in tribes. At, at, in tribes. At the same time that populations are increasingly empowered and demanding more, governments are coming under greater pressure from new challenges and more limited resources. This widening gap portends more political volatility, erosion of democracy, expanding roles for alternative providers of governance, meaning like uh, you'll start your own little government with yeah, your somebody, like-minded somebody friends. You'll have a country over, you know, next door to you. Accelerating shifts in military power, demographics, economic growth, environmental conditions and technology, as well as hardening divisions over governance models are likely to further ratchet up competition between China and a Western coalition led by the United States. At the state level, the relationship between societies and their governments in every region are likely to face persistent strains and tensions because of growing mismatches between what the public needs and expects and what governments can and will deliver. So experts in Washington are reading all this shit and going, it, it, it looks so gloomy for the future that 2040 is going to look. But do Congress people read this report and say, we got to stop our nonsense? Then they go into the poisoning of political discourse. They talk about the environment. We know the Arctic caps are melting at a perilous rate, raising sea levels and threatening dire consequences the world over. We know that for all the grand benefits of the Internet, digital technology has also unleashed lies, conspiracies and distrust, fragmenting societies, poisoning political discourse. We know that China's on the rise and we know how great their government is. Global well, trends offers no solutions. <laughs> uh, it's such a fucking horrible report. Um. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm like skipping pages of it, but it's so uh -huh. bad. I started reading it. I started to get the shakes. Well, the one thing I can say, Howard, is this is the worst case scenario and we could fix it if people looked at this and said, we don't want to go down this path anymore. Yeah. The problem is you can't because you got half the country saying this is all bullshit. We don't believe the scientists. We don't believe that. Um, but I'm uh, talking about the people in Congress. They know the real deal. No, they don't, because they they are kowtowing to look what they're doing in this uh, Liz Cheney. I know. Who was you know, I know. mean, because she won't say that the election was fair. I mean, she w she won't say it was unfair, but uh, it's crazy. Yeah, here's a guy, cybersecurity expert, Michael. Hey, dude, Pennsylvania, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Hey, you guys hear me? All right. I hear yeah, you we great. Hear you fine. So, yeah, the issue is around uh, cybersecurity. I think you're getting some things confused. Um, you have the private sector, which, you know, here in the U.S. is probably our biggest issue because, you know, you put a lot of funds into uh, things like budgets, cybersecurity expertise, and really, you know, just kind of uh, minimizing our defensive uh, infrastructure, you know, for capital gains. Then you have the federal side of it 
you know, so you have different agencies that are working very differently, but they're usually not in uh, conjunction with uh, our grouping. And then you have really the, I'll say, Internet of Things, you know, so you have information everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to secure that because then you have to minimize some of our own personal securities and things like that. Well, let me ask you something. You're an expert. Like Robin asked, is the talent there or not? I mean, do we have the guys who can stop these hackers and uh, protect our secrets and protect our Because it seems to me there's already a war going on there. No, no, we've, uh, we as an industry, you know, have been struggling with talent for a while. If you go into different things like the agencies, you know, people in, you know, overseas, you know, the, uh, the, the threat actors, they work two different ways. But you go into some of these uh, organizations or these companies and they're treated really like a business. You go into hack, you know, healthcare industry. There's people that are going into buildings. They have tickets and that's all they do all day just like it's a regular job. But these people are kind of being groomed, you know, from the early ages, you know, to, to move into that talent. Uh, I do and who's some, grooming uh, them? Uh, it, is it China and Russia and all our enemies? Well, it's you say enemies on one level, but one of the biggest issues that they're dealing with is it's not always about, you know, trying to bring the U.S. down. You know, they have, you know, billions of mouse that's around intellectual capital and property theft. Right, that's right, the biggest right. issue that we see in the yeah, that's a big issue. These other countries steal our intellectual property. They, they, they they'll they'll take great ideas and use them or make. Copies. Yeah, then they don't have to spend the money on the research. Right. They just go ahead and use it. But yeah, it's and, pretty and bleak. President Biden started a firestorm by saying he wanted to give away the vaccine technology, not let the companies who created it have a patent on it. You know, like the way medications are are developed is these companies put a lot of money into it, develop it, and then they get to have a, a proprietary right to it for several years so they can make their money back and make more right. money. But he wants to just give it away. He's on board with that. And the, the companies are like, are you out of your mind? That's our intellectual property. We're losing that race. And yet you want to give it away? Shit. What's he thinking? Uh, well, I hope Angela Merkel got his attention because she was like, absolutely not. Well, that's fucked up. I might have to run for president with The Rock. I mean, we might have to. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. Let me tell you another thing that happened this weekend. I'm talking to a couple of friends of mine. Yeah. And they said to me, we heard that Howard was giving political advice to The Rock and Matthew McConaughey. And they <laughs> really thought you had talked to The Rock and, and Yeah, I'm running their campaign. Well, people are so said, stupid because they know read- that's not true, don't you? Well, you know what it was? It was a bunch of articles that came out about how when I was talking to you on the air, how uh, I said, here's the thing, you know, that these guys don't understand. Once you have to, you know, The Rock never says anything controversial. Uh, the, 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 The other one, Matthew McConaughey, you know, he likes to speak in broad terms. He doesn't really, you know. Yeah, we they don't answer. know what he's saying most of the Exactly. Time. <laughs> most times you don't know what the hell Matthew's talking about, but it's fun. And these guys, you know, have terrific careers, but people, as soon as you ask them, well, where are you on abortion? They're going to, and, and where are you? So 
You and I had that conversation. Then the Daily News put out an article saying Howard Stern offers political advice to The Rock, meaning what I said on the show. Right. But people don't actually read the articles. They only read headlines. You know, so uh, people assume that I was now p- working for the campaigns of The Rock and <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. I, I couldn't believe I was like, oh, God, you know that's not true, don't you? And they were like, what? <laughs> we read it. <laughs> Marianne from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Well, what I read and saw this weekend, Howard, was beautiful, gorgeous. Oh, my God, that body, Howard. Uh, and it was all over the news also. Robin, did you see Beth? And I'm not a stalker, Howard. I'm no apples. I follow Beth because of all her, you know, positive posts. And I ordered my Helen tote. Helen Rose tote is available. All right, thank Robin. you, Marianne from Brooklyn. <laughs> Oh, now, I took goodness. a picture of Beth. Uh, she, w- I walked upstairs. She was in her bra and panties. <laughs> with, and and um, she was bent over litter boxes, filthy litter boxes, and trying to clean the litter boxes. And she was carrying about 10 of them. And I, I took my uh, phone and I snapped a picture. And she goes, what are you doing? I said, you should put this out. Because... People think, you know, it's glamorous what you do. They they accuse her. They say, oh, you must have a staff of people who do these cat, you know. Right. And all she does is hold the cats yeah. and pose for pictures to say cats are available. She literally all day, we have these cats with us and they and she cleans up after them. The mothers, the nursing mothers. The, I mean, it's really her whole day. It's a full time job. Twenty four seven. And uh, I said, put the caption, nothing glamorous about. (laughs) And she did. But of course, she looked super fucking hot. And, uh, you know, she was in her underwear and her bra doing this. And why was she in her underwear and bra? She gets so filthy full of cat poop. She doesn't want her clothes. So she so she what she does is she gets in the shower after she's done. And she doesn't want her clothes covered in, you know, because in poop. Right. Yeah. Because each cat has things that are wrong and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But evidently, I mean, it was almost uh, kind of pornographic. It was weird. Like I said to her, maybe, I think this was misinterpreted. It's like cat porno or something. Because, right, right. Because it is a hot picture. I thought it was really cat hot. lover's porn. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, uh you look good. And there's going to be like, a Helen Rose tote with there is one, favorite yeah. um, image that you've created. Yeah, it was a painting I did. So Beth is, um, again, every dime goes to animal care and rescue. So, uh, you know, she said, uh, make a tote. And the tote's really cute. Like good. you put your beach stuff in it and, you know. Beth goes, I just put, you know, you put whatever you want in this toad and it's cute and it's a nice, it's a way of making a donation to a good cause. So, yeah, Marianne, I, I have to always break down what Marianne's talking about. because Yeah, because <laughs> the way she's presenting it, I don't really know what she's talking about. <laughs> and then, you know, and then the world uh, again. The New York Times reported that COVID continues to run rampant through much of the world. It's well on its way to becoming an endemic. I didn't know the difference between a pandemic and an endemic, but an endemic is an ever-present threat. In other words, it will never go away. And that's because, like flu, and we had a shot at herd immunity, but the idiots in this country who think they're being poisoned by the vaccine, 
we're only at about 50% now and we have to get to 70 or 80%. And now they're saying we have to get to 90% of people because of what's going on. I have to congratulate San Francisco because it was uh, Dr. Gottlieb, who used to be the head of the FDA, was saying that they have gotten to 70%. And things are drastically different where COVID is concerned there. Yeah. I know. What the fuck is wrong with people? I wrote my friend a t- in a text and said, congratulations, you know, you guys reached 70%. And he said, yeah, we believe in science here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, but should, imagine that. By the way, you must certainly know that um, a lot of us have gotten the vaccine and none of us have really had a problem with it. So can you stop already? Just get it. Think about your fellow man. Think about yeah, I mean, our country. Think about your kids. Quandary here because I have a couple of friends who are, you know, they're telling me they're coming into town. Yeah. And they have not been vaccinated. Who, well, you know, and by the way. Like, oh, we want to get together. Who the fuck are your friends? Let me vet your I, friends. For I you. have to talk to everyone no, so you I don't. know what's going on in the world. No. I don't have First to wait all, for the New York Times to write about it. I talk to these people. You have the worst friends. Like idiots. Get out of here. My friends are great. Yeah. They, they're not vaccinated. Your friends well, are Well, really they're not great. coming near me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to find you some new friends. How about that? I have plenty of friends who are vaccinated. Bullshit. It's just this group, they're anti-vaxxers. You and, know who her friend uh, is? Who? Ted Nugent. That's who she's talking about, by the way, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That's her buddy. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? You want to come see me? Get out of here. Why would you be friends with them? They were idiots. Look, this just came up. COVID is shined a light on a lot of things, Howard. Good. Good. I hate your friends. I'm jealous of your friends. I don't like you being friends with anyone. You're my <laughs> friend. That's it. <laughs> the only I'm your friends friend. I'm seeing are friends who have been vaccinated. By the way, uh, yeah, I was just like, oh, this is sad because I've known them for so long, but I'm not seeing them. We're auditioning new friends for Robin. If you want to be friends with Robin, write in. I don't need any more friends. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) Only over there. You don't know what's going on. I'm down there in the trenches talking to people. (laughs) You stay in the trenches. I'll stay right where I am. Uh, by the way, uh, I'll remind you, your anti-vaccination friends hate you. They want you to die. They want you to get together they with wanna them. They want to kill me. Yeah, so th- put, put that in your head. But that's why I'm not seeing them. How Anyone who's anti-vaccination is pro-COVID. They're on the side of COVID. That's it. This morning, Bart- I saw a woman being interviewed who used to be anti-vax. And they asked her how she became that way. She was pregnant, and she and her husband watched a nine-hour documentary about vaccines with these alleged experts telling them that everything that happens to people is vaccine-related, and they started to believe it. And then she said, and then on Facebook, I found all of this information and evidence and people who believe the same things. And so they said, well, then what changed your mind? She said, I had loving friends who finally convinced me with real scientific information that I could not refute, and I have taken the vaccine. 
34% of the country is fully vaccinated. 46% of the country has gotten at least one dose. Okay, Bart, you're on the air in Missouri. Hey, Howard. Hey. Hey. Uh, uh, hey, now. Shit, they, they never warned me. Hey, now. Hey, Robin, hey, nice now. to meet you All right, guys. all right, goodbye, Bart. Yeah, I, hey. I'm going to fucking throw up from your call so far. <laughs> Uh, you might want to. Hey, man, I used to be on the very first nuclear missile submarine in the USS Ohio in, uh, in the United States. So uh, oh, oh, I just want to let you guys okay. know. I, hey, hey, man. Hey, seriously. Uh, you know what? I, 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 got, I, I got the COVID. I went to Sturgis last year. I thought it was all cool. And uh, I got back home, and my uh, stepfather has uh, leukemia and stuff. So. I went ahead and I, because of you guys, I got, I got the shot. You know what? I got both of them. And you know Good. what? I, I don't know what, you know what? I, I, I have a, I have a patch that says I wasn't a pussy. I rode the Sturgis 2020. And I would love to have a patch that says I wasn't a pussy. I got the shot 2021. I mean, it's like you guys. Well, anyone, you're right, Bart. You anyone who doesn't get the shot. In this country, should have a big X on their head, so we can stay away no, from. No, no, I, I, I got it. Beca- I, I got it because of you. You guys made a lot of sense, and I mean, I've been listening to you since Man Queer and shit back in the days. I used to live in Chicago, and uh, long story. But, I got, uh, all right, Bart. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And you know, Sturgis was one of those bike rallies. Yes, I know. In one of those it was, Dakotas. It was hard <laughs> to get a uh, word in with my man on the phone there. Yeah. But what he's saying is he got the vaccine. Good. Yes, Val. Val. This is Val in New York. Hey, guys. Howard, Fred, Queen. Good morning. Great call, by the way. Hey, now. Hey, now. Hey, now. Can you hear me? Yes, Val. Hey, now. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, now. Yeah. Um, yeah, this shit's real. I just got back from the hospital uh, two and a half weeks ago. You had and, it? Uh, I, I had that. Horrid. Yes, I had it. I had it for a couple of days. I was laying on my back at home, comatose, not even thinking what it was. And uh, when I realized Easter morning, I told my wife, listen, we got to go. And she brought me into the hospital Easter morning. I was there for two weeks. A week after I came in, she came in. Wow. She didn't make it home. She didn't make it home. Oh. Your wife died. I came home alone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She passed uh, the 17th. Um. How old a yeah. woman? So, uh, she just turned fifty-four. Oh, she t- she sorry. turned fifty-four in January, and and fifty. I was fifty-five in February, and uh, listen, we took all the precautions. I wasn't anti-vaccine uh, or or this shit ain't real. I'm not that. You know, we protected ourselves. Were we going out? Yeah, maybe too much. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, you everything being I heard. Careful was, what about the masks? Every time, everywhere. Really. Yeah. Every time, everywhere. And that's what the scary thing is, how this little speck of something found its way into me. Even protected. Where? Doctors are you, don't uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but are you dating again, or are you going to wait a little uh, while? Uh, uh. How well, t- listen, that story about your wife in a picture I haven't seen yet. I might want to look at that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Val. <laughs> the terrible story, his wife uh, died from uh, COVID. Oh. I see Robin's friends are calling in. <laughs> All right, I'm not even going to get into it. 
It's basically the Wendy voice going, are you Robin's friend? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's so you, how I look at them now. Are you going to get vaccinated? No. <laughs> I remember this chick. This guy lived near her. He passed her number to like a couple of us, like his good friends. Her name was Connie. And we and called her Handjob Connie. Handjob Connie. She loved jerking guys off. Handjob Connie. You would call her up. Hello. Hey, Connie. It's it's Ronnie. Hi, Ronnie. You remember me? I got your number from so and so. And remember, we met like two weeks ago. Absolutely, I do. She would say, "Okay, meet me at uh, three o'clock at the corner of this street," and she would be there. You know, you would think it was bullshit. You, Ronnie. It's me, Connie. Told you I'd be here. She would get in the car. She would not talk to you, you know, and you would drive around the corner or something to a quiet spot. Daylight, everything. Who gave a fuck? We didn't care. And we called her Handjob Connie. <laughs> Handjob Connie. Handjob Connie. You couldn't touch her. Just take your dick out. You take out your dick. Handjob Connie. She jerk you off, stare right in your face. <laughs> Never talked, really. You come in a fucking hand. Oh, yeah. She, oh. she carried her own tissues. You come in a hand. She'd clean her hands up and and then she'd get out of the car and walk away. It'd be basically hello and goodbye. Hand job Connie. Hand job Connie. <laughs> hand job Connie. Check this I'm out. I'm wondering if hand job Connie got a vaccine, you know, because you don't want to miss her. Fine. <laughs> hand job Connie's probably about 73 years old now. By the way, you're listening to uh, Sammy Hagar and The Circle doing a whole lot of love. I love that band. I think I think they're great. Um, I was listening to Leslie West. I, I have a whole list of songs I listen to when I want to make myself sad, which is always. Well, oh, you would like to make yourself sad. There wasn't anything special about this time. Well, Beth walked into my office and said, you're practically in tears. What's going on? I said, I'm playing my sad music. And she goes, well, stop it. Put on something pleasant. I go, I, I don't want to hear anything pleasant. I like music makes me feel. Uh, you can't feel but, happy? Happy is a feeling. I know. <laughs> I've heard about that. <laughs> Leslie West uh, died a couple of months ago. And I was listening to it just, you know, randomly came on. I was listening to his music and I went, oh, my God, all that talent is gone. The guy was so amazing. Then I was like pissed at myself. I should have probably called Leslie a couple more times. We emailed each other, but I don't know. I just felt sad. And then and then I was listening to, uh, you know, that song, um, Three Strange Days by School of Fish that came on that totally destroyed me. Like, I don't know, it gets me cuckoo. I don't even know what it's about, and it gets me cuckoo. I got, I started to, all of a sudden, it got me thinking about my early days in radio. And I started to get all freaked out. Like, what if this had happened, and what if that had happened, and I didn't do this, and I didn't do that? I, it, I, I'd be fucked. I'd probably be working some shit job right now. Oh, I, I started to go through what if... What if I had made this mistake or that mistake or this guy had made me so miserable that I got out of radio? I don't know. I just got all freaked out. This well, song it triggered me. interesting to me that somehow we kept going. 
even, I mean, I was suicidal at some point. And we still went to work every day. Actually, this was, the stuff I was bumming out was about before I even met you. Like when yeah, I was but on my, uh, yeah, oh. I didn't have a bad time until I met you. But yeah, yeah you didn't have <laughs> a bad you. time. Before <laughs> That's <me>. good. <laughs> Here was the thing. I was in college and I got a job. I've told this before, but this is what was freaking me out when I was listening to this song. I was in college my senior year and I walked into one of the coolest radio stations there ever was. It's called WNTN in Newton, Massachusetts. It was a daytime radio station. What that means is they're on from sunrise and they turn off at sunset. I won't go into why that is, but there are a couple of radio stations in the country who can only broadcast from sunrise to sunset. The re- okay, the reason is that there are bigger signals from bigger cities that are allowed to come in at night so that like people could hear them. So it was this whole complicated mess. But this station turned into one of the coolest stations you'd ever hear. It was progressive rock. The DJs could play whatever they wanted. And I walked in one day. And the general manager was some kid from my college who had graduated the previous year. I kind of knew him. I, I recognized him. I think his last name was Wolf. And this is what I was obsessing on on the weekend. Like, what was that guy's name? He was another college student, but he was the general manager of WNTN in Newton. The station was kind of falling apart. It wasn't making money at that point. It had its heyday. And now it was an AM radio station playing progressive rock. And now all the big FM signals like WBCN in Boston and WCOZ. There was no longer a need for a daytime, you know, progressive rock radio station. They were on their last legs. And I guess they hired this guy, Wolf, to be the general manager, if you will. The owner probably didn't want to spend a lot of money. So he hired a, a guy who just got out of college. And I walked in and I gave the guy my tape. And he listened to it and he said, it sounds pretty good. Okay. I'll put you on. He gave me a job and told me my salary. And I I was, I was like, what? (laughs) I'm going to make money in radio. I'm going to be an announcer. Called my father. I said, dad, I got to get a car. You got to help me out. Would you buy me a car so I can get to work? I've got a job. And he was like, oh, you got a job (laughs) in radio. I'll get you a car. My dad got me a car. A Dodge Polaris, a, a, a fucking secondhand Dodge Polaris that looked like a tank. Yeah, it was like a boat. <laughs> it was a boat. It was literally a boat. My friends called it you the Big Beauty. You could have gone to sea in it. <laughs> yeah. They go, where's the Big Beauty? So I get this car real quick. My father hustles up the money. My father didn't have a lot of money. And like he gets me this. He buys it used. I get the car. I'm a nervous wreck. I get this job. And I guess my tape sounded good because what I do is if I ever by accident sounded good one day, I would tape it and then I'd edit it up. And, you know, my tape was good. Well, I get on the air the first day. I'm on doing afternoon drive. Pretty big time slot. They, They put me in a studio with records. I'm shaking like a leaf. Like I couldn't believe this. I'm going to be on the radio. At WNTN, one of the coolest radio stations. And I'm like. I don't know. I went in and it was a disaster. 
It was so bad. I'm, when I say bad, I could barely get out a word. When I'd read, like, you had to read public service announcements. I couldn't even read. I was like, <laughs> I was so nervous. <laughs> so uh, I go on. They let me back the next day. I do another one and another show. I, I mean, one day was worse. I didn't even get better within the two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, the guy looks at me and he says, uh, you're fired. You're terrible. The same young guy. Yeah, Wolf. Whatever his name was, Wolf. I forget the first name. And he says to me, you're you're terrible. I go, uh, uh, I, and I, I couldn't argue with him. I was terrible. <laughs> he goes, it, it, it's horrible. You, you know, I even, I'd even like, you know, you had to play records and segue. I couldn't even get one record on to segue with another one. Like it, <laughs> I would, there would be dead air space. It was just, it was like, oh, it was like amateur hour. Yeah. It was so, I can't, as bad as you might be imagining as it was, it was worse. That's how bad it was. It was the worst radio show you could hear in the country. <laughs> That's a distinction. <laughs> yeah, it was probably the worst. And I'm sure all the other DJs who were working there, who had been experienced, some of them had even been in Boston radio, but they were down on their luck. Working with me must have been demeaning to them. You know, one guy said to me, why didn't you tell us you were a slow adult? This is rather novel, you know. <laughs> well, the guy says, you were so bad. I said, yeah. He says, and by the way, I'm not going to pay you a dime. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you were so bad. I'm not. I'm not going to pay you because I know you're. See, he even said something like, "What are you going to do about it?" I mean, you shouldn't be paid for this. <laughs> he said that to me, <laughs> and so over the weekend, they started. You know, I started to have a panic attack. And what brought this on was, again, this Ted Utz gets a hold of me, and he says, "Hey, by the way, anyone who worked at WRNW and the, in the, you know, when it was a progressive rock radio station." which I worked at, he said, they had, we now have a group of people who write on the internet and we write back and forth uh, to each other. Okay. It's a group. So I went on there and I started to get the shakes because I started to think about WRNW, how bad I was there and how, why didn't they fire me then? And, 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 and I started to think about this guy at WNTN saying to me, you're so bad, I'm not going to pay you because no one would even, you don't deserve to be paid. That's how bad you are. I did you a favor putting you on and you fucked up my radio station. And I, and I started to panic and I went, what if I had really kind of, I was so dopey. I didn't even take that to heart. And then I had to tell my father I got the car, but now I was no, out of have a I, job. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I said to him, I'm going to use the car to go find another radio job. And then I went out and found another radio job. I actually got hired at WRNW in Westchester by some miracle because I had a short haircut and the guy said I looked responsible, even though my tape was horrible. And I turned down the job. Think about how dumb I was. I turned down the job because I was nervous. I said, I suck. And, 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 and thank God I went back and I, a couple of months later and said, uh, uh, give me another shot. I, you I'm mean you, I got you left for a couple of months before going back? Yeah. I, I was not, I never took the job. I turned it down. Wow. I was going to do nights. I was going to, I was hired to do nights at WRNW. To 11 o'clock at night, like 6 to 11 or something, something like that. Something crazy. 7 to 11. And they hired you when you came back? I went back, back to them. I, w I went back to the guy. I said, I made a terrible mistake not accepting this job. 
would you consider me again? And I got part-time work, and then I worked into full-time. Oh, okay. But look at all the mistakes I made. What if I hadn't, what if I had lost faith in myself? What if I had let all the negativity in my brain get to me? That spirit that kept me going, I, I don't know where it came from, but I was like, thank God. And I started to panic, and I started thinking about WR&W, and I don't want to think about WR&W, and I don't want to think about WNTN and Newton. It's not pleasant for me. It was then horrible. why didn't you turn off the music and put on something else? I couldn't. <laughs> I, I I didn't. And then, oh, I got into a turn. And I went on this WR&W. I mean, what do I want to talk about WR&W? I've had tremendous career success. Yes. What am why I thinking about? Why are you still it? back there? Why am I torturing myself? And, and my wife, you understand you it's you torturing you. It's not oh, it's somebody horrible. else now. And then I see some of these people that I hired. But, you know, I became the program director at WRNW, and a couple of them on there are talking about how great it was. I was the program director, and, and I hired them. And then one guy, I see, I'm reading uh, this kid uh, I hired. Curtis K was his name on the air. I don't know what his real name was. It was Curtis K, he called himself. I hired him. <laughs> he gave him his first job. And he says, uh, oh, sorry to announce, Curtis has died. He's now dead. <gasps> Oh, geez. And I, I, I was like, oh, this is horrible. Yeah, you're having a terrible day. Yeah, and I remember him. I remember hiring him. He was like a, a, a kind of a shortish, pudgy guy. He had a nice, beautiful voice. I put him on in the morning or something. I don't even know what I did. I was the worst program director, too. I couldn't give two fucks <laughs> about it. Not only were you it. bad on the air. <laughs> I needed, not only was they bad on the air, I needed the money because they paid you 250 <laughs> Instead of $96 a week, they paid you $250 a week if you're the program director. So I'll be, I'll be a program director. I didn't know what I was doing. It was horrible. I had to hire people to be announcers. I don't think I picked anybody. I, there was a bunch of people I hired. I don't think any of them went on to any kind of success. <laughs> I mean, maybe no they, I don't even spotter. know. <laughs> I, oh, I was the worst talent spotter. <laughs> this, um, the guy who hired me was fabulous. The guy's name was Donald J. Barnett. He hired me. He hired Meg Griffin, who went on to tremendous radio. Wow. Success. Even someone said this guy knew how to pick talent. He hired a guy named Bob Maroney, who went on to big announcing success. Um, uh, I could name 20 guys, all of them. He had an ear. This guy had an ear. Everyone he hired went on to big success. Me, I don't <laughs> think anybody went on to any success. I think they're all out of radio, anyone. Because I would hire people. If somebody walked in, I'd just be like, will you show up every day, please, <laughs> and just make my life easy? I didn't care how they sounded. I didn't care how the radio station sounded. Oh I didn't give two God. fine fucks, as long as you just would do it. And just don't get into trouble. Uh, it was such a horrible job, program director. Don't ever become a program director. By the way, the industry has no respect for them. There was a guy, the guy at KROQ, I always forget his name in Los Angeles, the program director. It's one of the most financially successful radio stations. It had huge ratings. What was that motherfucker's name? He's such Kevin, a great Kevin guy. Weatherly? Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Weatherly. Kevin Weatherly. Thank you, guy. Kevin Weatherly. What a great guy. Brilliant programmer. They what treated they him. Kevin? They treated him like shit when he was part of the company with Viacom when we worked for Viacom. They treat him horribly like he want to leave. Really? No, like, like they never treated him well. Who could make a radio station in Los Angeles number one like he did or whatever they were? I mean, think about it. 
It's a dopey radio station. You got to pick music that other people want to hear. What a dumb job. I even said to myself, they gave me this job. I don't know what anybody wants to hear. <laughs> well, how would I know what somebody wants to hear? What do I know? I, I, I just graduated Boston University. <laughs> what do I know about what some douchebag wants to hear on the radio? So what I would do is uh, open up the trade papers and see what people were listening to. And I'd put it on the radio station. The owner came to me. He said, you'll be the program director. I said, oh, really? Okay. He says, and, and just play play mellow music. He said, I want a mellow rock format. I don't like all this hippie shit, for progressive rock. I said, okay. That sounded easy. And he's a mellow song I'll put on. <laughs> oh. Oh. What a well, what nightmare. What kept you going? You don't know what it was. Stupidity. Oh, stop it. I had nothing else going on. And then this lovely guy in uh, Hartford, Bill Nozzle. I was two years at this WRNW, Westchester 107, music from the woods. <laughs> I mean, thank God for it. Nobody would have hired me but this radio station. I told you that. that, people, that, that my fellow uh, disc jockeys wanted to unionize. I said, please don't. <laughs> if they pay us more than $4 an hour, I, they're going to fire me. <laughs> You'll get good people here. We, we're lucky there's no union. We're lucky they don't pay us. If they start paying people, we're the first ones to go. <laughs> you dummies. If they had money to pay people, they wouldn't hire idiots like me. Yeah, there's a little thing called a business model you have to take yeah. into consideration. Oh, you should have seen these guys. None, none of them, you know, they were all daydreaming. We got to get money. <laughs> I go, you got to get money. They start, if they give $10, $15 an hour, all these guys from New York are going to come down. But how are they going to get that money? Because they wouldn't no get money. for a spot. $2? Spot, $3. $3 for a minute commercial. Where are they <laughs> going to get this money? You $10 an hour. I said, you guys, we're going to bankrupt this radio station. And they're going <laughs> to fire us. I'm no Norma Ray. I'm just going to fucking stay here and fucking relax. This is a training ground. This ain't a per if, if you're looking at this place as your permanent job, we're fucked. <laughs> we got to get out. I knew that. Yeah. After two years, I, I, I applied to a st radio station in Hartford. A, a lovely guy named Bill Nozzle hired me. God bless Bill Nozzle wherever you are. I love you. He heard my audition. He told me no way he'd hire me. And I left there dejected. And I said, I wrote him. I said, can you give me a second chance? And he gave me a second chance. He says, you know, you, 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 you did better. I'm going to hire you. You're the morning man. Wow. 250 bucks a week just to be on the radio six days a week. And you didn't yeah. have to pick the music. No. He, well, yeah, no. He <laughs> Bill picked the music. And I was so grateful for that. I don't want to pick the music. Fred, did we pick the music at, at WCC? It was like a card file or something like Cards, that yeah, that yeah, you, yeah. You, you picked. So yeah. it was kind of like an Abrams, quasi-Abrams yes. format. Thank you, Fred. That's Fred who has an iron, iron, uh, iron memory. Yeah. So I got hired. To, thank God. Thank you, Bill Nozzle. Love that guy. Gave me a shot, but I, I started to shake. Uh, what, what, what if I, what if I didn't get that job? 
you know, it, it's it, it was all such a nutty career. It was all so horrible. It was all so so. I, I used to. No wonder I started to develop OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, where I would think magical thoughts and that would keep me on the radio. And it must have worked because I was so talentless and so nervous on the air that I couldn't get it together. But I think by doing these rituals, uh, something something magical happened. Now, did you ever have a chance to practice putting records on and you know <laughs> like in an unprofessional situation like at school or anything so yeah. when you got to that station this was like oh i was at the, the fr- college radio college radio station i practiced every day i had a radio show every day oh you did yeah i was still bad at it <laughs> because my hands would shake i was so nervous oh dear yeah horrible i was filled with angst so I'm, I'm, you know, I don't like to think about the early days. By the way, do you remember? I'm, I'm going to change the topic because I'm getting sick. Um, do you remember the other day I was talking about Donnie V of Enough's Enough? Yes. And I said that Donnie was a great talent. He was the lead singer, and I always thought they were going to be a big group. And I said nobody sings John Lennon better than Donnie. Well, Donnie was appreciative, and he said Howard. I mean, he sent me this. Here he is doing instant karma. Donnie, Donnie V and the Lumberjack. He's still singing. Okay. He's still singing. Donnie still sings. This is Donnie V and the Love Brigade. And I, I, he sent me instant karma. And it's true. Listen to him singing John Lennon. I think the guy's terrific. Got a great voice. It's good, isn't it? Donnie told me he released that with a video last year, as a matter of fact, in support uh-huh. of an anti-bullying campaign. It was a whole uh, thing he was involved with. But uh, it was good to hear from him. He's doing well, I guess. And, and Why uh, that would was he go on one of those shows like The Voice or <laughs> oh, come American on. Idol? Donnie? No, I'm telling you, all he needs is exposure. Because it would be demeaning to him. In other words, this guy... You know, he had a record contract. Enough is enough. Had you know, they had a hit record on MTV. It, it would be demeaning. It, it would be insulting. That's why it would. Be, it it, would, it, it would, might create a career. Well, Donnie should be the judge, not the fucking guy auditioning <laughs> for those humps. Are you crazy, Donnie? On the Voice, I get so sick. Donnie's of got more people talent. Who can't sing? They can sing. Donnie's got more talent than any of those people on The Voice, and he's going to audition right. for them. That's right. Uh, That's what I'm saying. That he can get the you're exposure. Saying, no, what you're saying is Donnie should humiliate himself and go on the. No, voice. Uh, nothing is humiliating except what you say in your head, just like you just said. Get over here, Robin. Right now. <laughs> get out Time there your... <laughs> and get the audience you want. You come. I here. don't care by hook or by crook. Donnie, don't listen to her. Don't go on the voice. Do you realize, remember when we were interviewing Kelly Clarkson? Kelly Clarkson had had and lost a record contract. 
Yeah, but she was she like 19. Dumb. It doesn't matter. You're bullying Don. It's, it's, oh, Stop it. there's also America's Got Talent. You go oh, in any of Oh, my God. <laughs> what, and, and sit there and humiliate yourself in front and of one. No offense to Howie and yeah, Donnie, go sing uh, Instant Karma and then uh, have and then first make sure they clean the elephant shit off the stage from the magician who made the elephant disappear. <laughs> you know, no, Donnie doesn't need that. Donnie, imagine <laughs> Heidi Klum judging a fucking Donnie. Aren't you very, very handsome, very good, but uh, you don't, you're too old to be and uh, too old. I, I didn't like that song. Your song choice was not good. <laughs> <laughs> you should sing, oh, ring, ring the bell, ring the bell. <laughs> oh, thank you for your, thank you for your comments, uh, Heidi. <laughs> How will you go? Don't do any original songs, Donnie. You know. And Simon will scowl at him. I don't think that song was very good. Fuck you. You <laughs> fuck. Simon Cowell. Talentless prick. And then they're hitting the golden Liar. buzzer for the dog act. You know. <laughs> on, on, on dog act. Golden buzzer. <laughs> my kids would love these. Everything my kids wouldn't, about her kids. My kids wouldn't love instant karma so much. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know that. Yeah. So I'm going to be like, um, the Beatles are boring. Why are you singing that? Shut up. Oh, let me play you this before uh, I talk with Seth. So here, uh, here's a phony phone call. I love phony phone calls. The other day, Robin and I were talking. I started uh, saying, I, I, I pretended to be Colton from yeah. The Bachelor who came out as gay. So the guys called a religious show. And they chopped up my voice as Colton, you know, and uh, they used it on the religious show. This is me calling a religious show saying that the COVID, uh, the, I got COVID and it made me gay. Ah. And I told this to the religious show. And this show, I don't know. I, you know what I think? These internet radio shows never get a phone call. So no matter what it is, they stay with it. <laughs> COVID made me gay. <laughs> In Jesus' name. Ah, uh, yeah. Good morning to you, area code 111. God bless you this morning. How are you? Hi, uh, good morning and God bless. What you want to pray about, sir? Well, my dad, Howard, he's here with me. Hi. Yeah. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but he had COVID and now he's gay. Oh, see? COVID made me gay. My, my, my. I was just like a homosexual. You've heard of that being one of the side effects, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. I ate a gay bat. All right, Howard. Bless okay, you. Okay, Howard, we're going to pray for you. I'm telling you, I got COVID, and suddenly I wanted to fuck guys. Shut up. My goodness. You know, they say with COVID, you lose your sense of smell and taste. Let's go ahead and pray for him, because I know he's getting ready to say something that's out of the way, okay? I lost my sense of smell and taste for pussy. Shut up, shut up, shut up, Thank God for Jesus this morning. We thank God for Howard being bold enough to call in. I think I'm into share and assless chaps. Shut up. And we know that Howard belongs to God. He don't belong to us. God, please. He make me straight, make me straight. And God love him like he love us. Please. Stop me from thinking about deep-throating a tasty cock. Shut I, up. I, I, Shut I, I, up. Jesus. He's a homosexual. Ooh. He has tell you about all the different things that he do with his mouth. 
side effects from the virus, God, she's sick. Please make the women that I meet have a penis. No, I ain't gonna get the devil no chance. No chance. One day, I forgot to wear my mask. Shut the next up. day, I'm jerking off to the New England Patriots. Ah, yes, shot. Hey, God. Hey, ah, thank, you. Ah, thank you, Jesus. That's speaking in tongues, too. It's working. Thank you, Jesus. Baruch Hu et Adonai Hambarah. Ah, yes, shot. Hey, Jesus. That Emily Radikowski is just fucking hot. Again. I want to see her naked. Hallelujah. Thank God. Thank God. I am so not homosexual. Hallelujah. Jesus. Wow, I'm really Thank charged up about women. Ah. Oh, we're crying here too. Hey, Lord, do it. <laughs> hey, do it for your people. Hey, Lord Jesus. Hey, God. Hey, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Thank you, God. I'm so happy. I have no interest in gay sex with men. God bless you for that. Amen. You two love you. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. You take care to say. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. What a journey. <laughs> oh, that is chilling. Chilling that there are people. Do they, Were they serious? I don't they know. They actually but, uh, have heard that COVID causes gay that, uh, tendencies. Yeah, yeah they, you heard them. <laughs> what are you talking about? Of course. That show gets results. Do you see how quickly oh, they cured me? They cured you right away. Where's yeah. cold? Oh, Maybe it. the real cold should call. <laughs> I lost my taste for pussy. <laughs> I love it. Uh, by the way, so many of you have written us about... Uh, Various things that went on last week on the show. And uh, I should share a few of those things. First of all, George Takei and Brad and Fun oh. George were on the show. If you remember, George and Brad were amazing on the show. They're funny, intelligent, open, warm, incredible. I love them both so much. I absolutely love George and Brad. Special thanks to Brad for playing along. So much fun having him be a part of the shenanigans. They are a delightful couple. George and Brad, or as this one says, George and Bradder. Oh, Bradder, <laughs> were amazing as usual. It was an absolute joy to hear them both happy and healthy. George is 84 and still does 100 push-ups a day. That's impressive. Um, I'm rubbing myself. Anyway, people love George. You know that, Robin. I don't That's right. You. It's wonderful that he gets such a great reaction. During the interview, George revealed he's now a distinguished gentleman after refusing to record a song parody for us. The fans were a little upset with George because they love when he sings. <laughs> I was so let down when George revealed he was retiring from singing outrageous songs for the Stern Show. That's like Michael Jordan quitting basketball. This is where George shines. Uh, Howard George has such a rich history recording classic song parodies on the Stern Show. Brad's Big Balls is my favorite. Oh, I wish I had that here to play for you. Brad's Big Balls, Brad's Big Balls. Da, 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 da. Do I have that here? I guess not. Such a good song. Uh, Howard, um, George seriously needs to rethink this distinguished gentleman business and record all that jizz, all that jizz, <laughs> which he didn't want to do. Uh, um, 
We highlighted a few of the amazing songs that George has recorded for us over the years. Who could forget the time he performed Carol of the Balls with the New York City Gay Men's Choir? I don't even remember that. Is that right? Huh. I don't see it here. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, I see. Okay, got it. How many tapes here? Here's uh, here's George singing a song. I don't even remember that he recorded. I could get to it. Nuts on my chin, cock in my mouth, dick in my butt, lick on my nuts. Sucking on bones through glory holes, tickle my ting, ass is a gate. Gaily we sing, wearing cock rings, don't fear the queer, Christmas is here. Rub us, tug us, suck us, fuck us, fist us. Rub us, tug us, suck us, fuck us, fist us. How could I forget this? I, I, I don't stuff. know. I'm shocked. I've forgotten it, too. I didn't recognize that at all. Brad's big balls, Brad's big balls, hanging in his underwear. <laughs> when they're in my face, I'll take a taste and spit out the pubic hair. Brad's big balls, Brad's big balls, smacking on my rear. Because juicy nuts slapping on my butt makes me one happy queer. Wow. You know, I'm, I wish we right, could have had him do all that jizz. All that jizz. Well, just yeah, all right. Added Listen, guys. to the pantheon. Um, during the interview, we also heard from Fun George. Everybody loves Fun George. Uh, he was wild. He was outrageous, and he he yelled at distinguished George. He's got to be fun. <laughs> By the way, fun, George, are you there? I, I, I must say, you're a big hit with the audience. Everybody loved you. Well, thank you, Howard. I had a wonderful time with no fun, George. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I got to say, you are a lot of fun, and you also have a husband named Brad, and uh, we had a good time with you, and the fans love you for it. Absolutely. Oh, Brad! Brad, help me. I, I'm slipping off my chair. Come prop me up, Brad. Brad. I'll read you, Fun George, I'll read you a couple of comments. Fun George is incredible. I've been laughing all morning, and the combo of the bell and Brad is making me lose it. Yes, you also ring a bell to get your husband's attention. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Brad, where are you? Brad. He's probably cheating on me with a Snickers bar. <laughs> you know, Fun George, when you ring the bell, I have to tell you, I told this to the other George, too. You know, it is so, it comes off as elitist, you know, to ring a bell for another human being is so crazy. It's just, it's over the top. It really is. Because, you know, I mean, we, we don't ring bells. It's insulting, do you? don't you think? Well, Howard, I have to take Brad out for his daily exercise. It's the only way. Brad, come on, march up here. Brad, it's By the way, your Brad doesn't seem to, your Brad doesn't seem to respond to the bell. You've been ringing yeah. it for, for days now. You know, I think I might uh, have a bell out of tune. Brad, get me a backup bell. Brad! <laughs> fun George was so funny. This is all about you, Fun George. Fun George was so funny, most of the time I couldn't even tell the difference between Fun George and the actual George. What's even funnier is the real Brad's annoyance with Fun George. Yes, I like when Brad said to Fun George, you don't even know if George, real George, is circumcised. And Robin said, yeah, what do you think? That's on IMDb? We would, none of us know that. Why would we know? 
Remember that, Fun George? I asked for my penis to be baby-oiled ages ago, and Brad still hasn't done it. (laughs) Brad, come on! Uh, Finally, oh my God, I was on the floor laughing Wednesday morning listening to Fun George and Real George. More of that, please. The two of them need their own show. Would you be up for your own show, Fun George? Absolutely. Uh, And I know I'm very hard on Brad, but, you know, just like the Ben and Jerry's ice cream... My chubby hubby tastes delectable, and I down him by the pint. Oh, my. <laughs> Come you know, here and blow you. me, Brad. <laughs> you know, you say, you say that fun, George, but I got to tell you, you know, you do love sensuous activity. I know you love your body rubbed. I know you, your nipples are very, very sensitive. You Absolutely. You love, yes, you love to have your tits rubbed, right? Is that correct, too? Tickle my tits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Brad, Brad, sl- I'm still slipping. Hurry, I'm about to autofillate myself. <laughs> <laughs> Fun George. Fun George, do, do you do you do you have a serious message? I mean, I love talking about listen, I love you know how pro gay rights I am and I I love when you guys come on. I think you you have a great message that love is love and and all that. But is there a serious message you want to get out? Go ahead. Well, I believe that, um, you know, the Japanese Americans now are, are getting a lot of in- attention that isn't the right attention. Right. And now, uh, more than ever, I think I should be singing uh, songs about uh, jism and, and anuses and bungholes. So, <laughs> right. Okay. That's for, a good without message. further ado... Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, my sweet bunghole. My sweet bunghole. My sweet bunghole. <laughs> All right, well, listen, I'll let you go, okay? Um, um, I, right. I, 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 by the way, before I let you go, let me, let me tell you, play you something from The Real George. You know, during the recording session that we had with George, The Real yeah. George, I mean. George got annoyed when Brad tried to ring the bell when we were recording with him. Oh. George has a specific way. I thought this was fun to listen to. Here are the guys behind the scenes and George getting annoyed when Brad tries to ring the Hi, bell. Hi, this is George Takei. Please excuse me for a moment while I ring my husband. Oh, where's the bell? There it is. That was Brad. <clears throat> Hi, this is George Takei. Please excuse me for a moment while I ring my husband. No. (laughs) This is starting over now. I know what George is going to do. Okay. Hi, this is George Takei. Hey. So he he was directing Brad uh, on bell ringing. Yes. Brad, Brad rang himself into the doghouse on that one. It requires a lot of proper training. You know, I'm teaching a master's course soon on how to attract the same sex up a flight of stairs. <laughs> well, well, teach us how do you ring the bell the wrong way and then uh, show us the right way. Well, the right way is banging it as aggressively as you can. You know, sort of like jacking off. Ah, 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 ah. The, the wrong way to do it is a, a, a light tap. You know, that's, that's incorrect. Right. Brad will never hear that. You've got to <laughs> pound that thing like I pound his buxom ass. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, uh, Fun George. You are uh, a great addition to the staff, and uh, thank you for calling in, and uh, we appreciate it. Okay.
Fun George, everyone. Bye, Fun George. Bye bye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there were many more comments about Ask Napkin, Ed. The listeners are turned off by Ask Napkin. Please keep anti vax morons like Ask Napkin off the air. He's not a libertarian, he's another SSI whack pack parasite. Ask Napkin Ed isn't worthy of sucking high pitch Eric's dick, much less John McCain's. Please stop talking to this walking worm farm. My goodness. Uh, despite where he stands on political issues, uh, people continue to be fascinated by Ask Napkin Ed's health issues. Um, Wolfie did a follow-up call with Ed and learned some new information. Ed explained he has a medical condition that requires frequent naps. Did you know this? No. Yeah, this is crazy. Um, listen to this. Here's Ask Napkin, and then I'll get right over to Seth Rogen. Um, listen to this. The reason I take a nap is because I have um, necrophilia. And what is necrophilia? <laughs> that means that just simply means that you um, can't function. That's what keeps me from being awake all the time. It's a disorder. What is the cure for necrophilia? Oh, um, it's a cure. Um, I don't know. They, they don't give me something for that. They don't, they don't give me anything for that. Mm. Yeah. Hey, Ed, did you fall asleep? No, no. You can see he has a bad case of necrophilia. <laughs> By the way, the, the term is narcolepsy. I've ever, I ever heard of necrophilia. That's the worst yeah. case. <laughs> Ed has a condition called uh, narcolepsy, but he thinks he has necrophilia, which is he doesn't even have narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. He's just he's a drunk. <laughs> All right, you know what I got to do? I'm take get, a break. You get sleepy when you drink. I always love having Seth Rogen on, but I especially love having him today because he wrote a book that I really enjoyed, and I'm uh, happy to promote it, and it's got some great stories in it. We'll get to Seth right after these words. Thank you, George. Always good to hear George. Robin Seth's memoir, Yearbook, officially comes out tomorrow. It's available now for pre-order wherever books are sold. I will tell you that um, Seth, uh, Seth Rogen's book is worth you getting. I... Don't say that because he's here. I've said it. Uh, I read it three weeks ago, and and I don't read a lot, but I'll tell you what, Seth. I read it in two days. You know, wow. and I don't read all day. I mean, I just, you know, it, it flies by, and I felt like I was hanging out with you, and you were That's telling nice. me about your life. You did a great, great job. I mean it. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to do, was make it feel like I was telling you stories <laughs> in book form. You, so uh, I appreciate that very much. That's so nice of you. <laughs> sometimes you buy a book by a celebrity and it doesn't sound like them. This sounded like you. Did you write the whole, the, in other words, there was no help from anyone. You did it yourself. Yeah, I wrote every word of the book I myself, definitely. <laughs> I could tell. I could have had help. That was an option. I didn't know that was a f- <laughs> Of course Did you Steve could. Martin not write that book? <laughs> Imagine you got Steve Martin to write the book. It would that would so be easy. <laughs> but, but did the quarantine help you finish the book? I've written a couple of books. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I know how difficult it is. It is a, a torturous process because you constantly reread and reread and say, why did I write that? I didn't tell it right. 
yeah. in quarantine, I would think you were forced to focus on this this project. It was really helpful. I think my book is around a year and a half late <laughs> from when it was supposed <laughs> to be. Um, I remember being. I remember like being on vacation like two New Year's ago and like being like, I'm supposed to be writing this book and like just not doing it and, and try. And I was doing it. I just wasn't finishing. It was just took longer than I thought it was going to. And, and like you said, I wanted it to be good. And, and I become like, I reread it over and over, like you say, and like you really just imagine the worst things people might say about you. Generally, that's how I work <laughs> generally. Um, and I then rewrite trying to, uh, circumvent people saying those things. But, uh, yeah, it, it took forever. It took a really long time. But then when quarantine, yeah, when quarantine hit, I finally had like three months, basically like March, April, May, June is like when I finally like all day, every day sat down and, and finished the book, which did you yeah, find that the publisher, coming. did you find like when I would write the book, the publisher wanted the book done. Yeah. When I signed the deal, they would say, take as much time as you need. Then yes. they would contact you and say, all right, this book should come out for Christmas. So yeah. let it come out now. And they start to put this pressure on you. And, and, and then I found myself having to say, it's not good enough yet. It's not right yet. And, and you feel like you're disappointing everyone in a way when you don't have this book ready in time. Am I correct? A little bit. I think if there's one thing that I do not feel that stressed out about, it is uh, missing deadlines by truly insane amounts of time. <laughs> but Seth, <And> I probably. <laughs> but Seth, they pay you. Like, I know I got an advance to write the book. Yes. They and did. so they would be like, they'd say, look, we paid you. Come on, but get this yeah. thing done already as if you're a slacker. But it's not. There's some sort of no. process. You know what I mean? They want, I, I'm, and I'm always like, they, you paid me to write a good book, not a fast book. Like, no, right. one, uh, no one's ever read anything and been like, wow, I bet this was handed in on time. Like, that, that, that's, that's, it's not, it stops being relevant, you know? Um, and so that was really, I just wanted it to be good. And with our movies, what I actually liked about writing the book is with our movies, there is so much more infrastructure. So many more people have to sign off on everything. And you have to get so many more people on board with your ideas to um, execute them, you know, and to bring them to life. And, and to that end, if you're, if, if there's like, if you're really late with a movie deadline, like you are not just like, it affects, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, not just you and your publisher. If, if you're filming a movie and you go over, it's like a disastrous thing that literally costs hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, you know? Um, and so I actually liked the pressure that I was just disappointing, like one British man who was, you know what? Um, <laughs> I get that because you made it, you know what, in all seriousness, when you write about the movie business, your experiences in the movie business, I start to realize just how complex it is because yeah. when, especially when you were talking about that whole fucking part of your life where you made this movie and of course it was famous now that North, it was about North Korea and killing Kim Jong-un and you write about just how difficult it was when yeah. that whole thing was going. I really felt for you because you write when the whole thing was going down, the studio said, look, we're nervous. We, we yeah. want to get this movie out and we want you instead of blowing up Kim Jong Un's head so graphically, which is funny. 
Yes. We want you to just put a fire effect in front of Kim Jong-un. And I thought, how lame is that? Imagine your big joke, your big finale is blowing up Kim Jong-un's head, which would be funny. I can see that being funny. It was funny. It got a huge laugh. We were able to test it a few times. (laughs) (laughs) And and when I saw your disappointment, in the book, you made it very clear. Like, you were like, we worked so hard on this movie, and now everyone is such so cowardly about it. They want us to ruin the jokes. It it must be heartbreaking. And and it comes across in the book. It really does. It is like, it's something that, yeah, like... And it doesn't happen a ton. And the truth is we make movies that are specifically not incredibly expensive because of how much we are irked when people don't let us do like exactly <laughs> what we want to do creatively. And I've honestly, I've like done a lot of like reflection as to like, why does it bother me so much? Cause it really does bother me. Like it, 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 and, and the, the words I can always use are just like, it's when people like fuck with our shit. Like that, that is, just yep. like for no reason I, I it's okay if we're wrong or like it, but it's always it's so arbitrary often and 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 i think that like this work does represent us and like who we are and our sensibilities and like that that's that's our goal here is that you 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 watch what we do and you you're like oh i i get i get him i get this and 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 i maybe get myself a little better ideally if we're really hitting the bullseye with some of our work and as soon as you start to change it. It's just like, uh, why? <laughs> like, I thought the whole point of this was, was to, for us to create a thing, the thing that you wanted us to make, which is, which is our output, which is what we think is, is good. You know, you're so um, right. And as soon as they don't do that, you're like, what's the point of any of this? Why are we doing this? Why did you ask us to do this? Um, and it really is, it becomes distressing when then you feel like, you are being represented by something that is not representative of your actual tastes and, and, and what you think actually makes a good movie, you know? Um, and that was like the biggest situation I've had like that where, um, the movie just, it was mostly what we wanted it to be, but there were some key parts that were not at all what we wanted them to be, but that makes a big difference, you know? <laughs> and so I relate to it, that. Yeah. It was really, it was I loved reading about yeah. that. Because you wrote about it so well and so succinctly that I was disappointed in myself because when I wrote about my troubles with the FCC and the government, that was my overwhelming feeling. It wasn't about yeah. making money. It was I just didn't want people to think I was lame. They were editing exactly. my show, That's and really it wasn't my it. sense of humor. Yeah. The language you just was don't being want people changed. to think like do do will do do I think that this guy's head with flames washing over it is a good ending to a movie? Like yes. no, but people are gonna think that I think that, and that is alarming to me. Yes, They'll when think they, I'm crazy, the thing I don't when, know how to make a movie, you know. Um, yeah, it's upsetting. <laughs> when they would edit my show, I'd say somebody out there in Radioville thinks that I that lame joke that I just told that I. I endorse it in some way. You know, you write in the book, and I was moved by this. You said, at the time that movie was coming out, the guys at the studio wanted me to do interviews and lie to people. And actually, I was kind of shocked because I'm reading the book and you go and I'm and you go, I'm not going to go on the Howard Stern show and lie to him because he'll pick up on it. It was really, you know, I always get startled when I see my name in somebody's book. But you're right. In other words. I would have said to you, gee, do you think lighting a guy's head on fire is really that funny or whatever? And you would, and they wanted you to say, it's the greatest joke ever. And yeah. that's the most insulting part, isn't it? 
It really is. And that, and the fact that they said specifically, they, he, Michael Linton, the guy who was the head of Sony, said specifically, like, you have to lie about this in press. Cause he was savvy enough to know that that would be like the real friction point, you know, like you can change the movie, but you can't control what people say about it. But he knew that if I was around going out saying that they ruined the end of my movie, that that would quickly take over any other narrative with the movie and just be very damaging for the studio in general. Other people wouldn't want to work with them. No one wants to work with a studio is known for taking away its movies from um, its filmmakers, you know? Um, so yeah, he asked me to lie about it. He asked me to say, We'll, we're going to change the end of the movie, and I want you to go around pretending that you made this choice. Um, and it was, it's a fucked up thing to ask someone. You know what, <laughs> it, Seth? It, was, uh, it really was, it was super fucked up, and I didn't do it. I said no. Well, first I said yes, and then in the book I illustrate, that night was the premiere, and I took a ton of MDMA and uh, had a revelation while high that I could not lie to people about the movie, <laughs> and then went in the next morning, while still on uh, probably more drugs than I should have been, to talk to the head of Sony and told him I would not lie about the movie, and they should not assume I will and and he uh finally kind of caved on that one <laughs> yeah reading the book I'm so amazed by so you have made so many decisions while high that, uh, <laughs> you know. Know what I mean? so many things have happened in your life you're so relaxed about it but but I was curious I was I was shocked by some of your honesty because there's this unwritten rule in Hollywood especially uh people who make movies and get financing for movies Naming some of these people who have asked you to do shit. Um, were you nervous, uh, seriously, writing this book? Because I can think of about 10 people in this book, and I'll name them, yeah. who I think are going to dislike you very much because you're very <laughs> honest about your interactions with them. And, 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 and I love that you didn't censor yourself. I love it. It makes for yeah. great reading. But some of um, these stories make some people look really fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> are they people that don't already look stupid i guess is what <laughs> <laughs> well, um, i don't know yeah well yeah they do i don't know either. Right. the truth is i don't know either <laughs> you know, <laughs> <told> me. <laughs> i don't know i hope i mean truthfully i tried i really thought okay well this just makes some people look dumb uh, maybe i look dumb all the time i don't think looking dumb right. is you like make yourself look dumb too right? i look yes. like yes like um and i don't think looking dumb i think everyone should look dumb every now and then you know what i mean there's some people i probably go a little harder at and i did ask myself like do i actually think this would damage their career in any way like because that like i don't care if these people don't like me is 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 right. the truth because <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 ton of, I assume, I assume most people don't like me as I go around and interact with people in the world. Um, so it's fine with me, you know, uh, and I, and I see these people very rarely. Years will go. I might never see them ever again. Who knows, you know? Um, well, so will yeah. you, do you get nervous that, yeah. let's say, you know, being in LA or something, you go to a restaurant and there's Nicolas Cage. And you wrote yeah. about Nicolas Cage extensively in your book around the He's movie so The Green strange. Hornet. I don't know how he absorbs this. You <laughs> like, <laughs> might like I it. Don't, I honestly don't know if he comes over. And he's like, yeah, that was like, like funny, funny chapter. Like, I truly, I truly don't know how a lot of these people absorb anything in general. So it's also hard to predict how they will react to this kind of thing. But it's I don't such know. A great, but it's such a great story because I've met. 
met Nicolas Cage, and he is, he's a real, let's call him eccentric. He's a he character. He is eccentric. Yeah. Yes. Great actor. And you say he's a great actor. You wanted him to be in The Green Hornet. I'm a You're... huge fan of his. And I'm still a huge fan yes. of his. And, I, and, and yeah, I, I, I hope I, that he doesn't do something that doesn't allow stop me from being able to watch his movies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he has but, that But power, the story but... goes, you wanted Nicolas Cage. In the Green, I, I mean, there's so many funny stories about the Green Hornet, like the guy you there wanted is. to, uh, the, yeah, but, but you wanted Nicholas Cage. I'm doing Cage. the audiobook and I just got, I was getting the director, Michelle Gaudry, to record all of his lines for the audiobook and it was just <laughs> so funny, uh, rehashing all this stuff with him. <laughs> but the story was that, that, that you had this idea that he could be a villain yeah. in the movie and he met with you on it and he yeah. started to do a character for you, which was a white Jamaican with an accent and a whole thing. Yes. And yes. he did this for you. And you were like, what the fuck is this? I, I don't I don't know what this criminal is. I don't know what yeah. he's talking about. And you thought it was just not right for the movie to be kind, right? Yeah, it was not. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, the studio was very enthusiastic about Nicolas Cage being in the movie to the point that they were. And, and I, again, like I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan. But as I state in the book, there's a lot of Nicolas Cages. There's and I think even Nicolas Cage would acknowledge there's there's many Nicolas Cages. <laughs> And you don't know what Nicolas Cage you're going to get. There's, right. there's Wicker Man Nicolas Cage. There's Face Off Nicolas Cage. There's, you know, there's Leaving Las Vegas Nicolas Cage. There's Peggy there's Sue Gets Married. <laughs> exactly. Then there's Peggy Sue Got Married. There's, right. there's a wide, there's Ghost Rider. There's a wide array of Nicolas Cages out there. And the dude takes, again, to his credit, big swings. Right. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we heard. So there was a few preliminary phone calls, which, yeah, the the thing that I said that stuck out in my head is at first he was like, <laughs> I want to tattoo hair on my head. Um, I can be a bald guy with hair tattooed on his head, and I want a big fake uh, Edward Robinson uh, lips. Um, <laughs> and we were like, okay. And we were kind of <laughs> wrapping our heads around it. And then we got a call a few days later where he's like, you know, I actually don't want to do the hair tattooed on my head thing for the movie because I'm thinking I might want to do it in real life. And, and I remember <laughs> laughing. I remember like I remember like that, like laughing hysterically when he said it on the phone, and then stopping and realizing it wasn't a joke. Like I remember being like, "Oh, good one. Oh, he's totally serious." Um, and so, so then there was a while where we didn't know what he wanted, and then we got a phone call where he wants to play a white uh, Bahamian man uh, from the Bahamas, essentially a white. Uh, we, it was pitched as like a white Jamaican guy, basically. Right. Uh, right. Which we were, uh, set off a lot of alarms, I would say to us. <laughs> in a lot of not a white, not that a white Jamaican man is bad, but doing the accent and all this stuff just seemed like it was a, a world of trouble that we, that we did not, you know, if he was like a British colonialist, that would maybe be right. a more <laughs> in the, a realistic take on it. But, um, yeah, he, so there was a meet, we, we were like, I don't know if it's a good idea. It just seems, Gary Oldman kind of did it a long time ago and it, that even has not aged well, you know? Right. Um, and so we were like, Amy, the head of the studio was like, let's just talk. Well, I'll get to my house and we'll talk and, and you'll meet Nick and in person and you can talk about it. And, and I remember driving there with Evan, my partner, and just being like, I just don't want him to do it in front of us. Like, I'll just be so uncomfortable. Like, I don't know, I don't know how I'll react. I don't know. Yeah, he's how, Nicholas Cage. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, it's just, it's just weird, you know? And I remember Evan being like, he's not going to do it. Like, obviously, like, you'll talk about it. He won't like 
launch into it like that's just would be too too much <laughs> do like, we literally like we show up at the house and within 60 seconds we're all like seated in the living room as he stands in front of us like reciting like a monologue in a jamaican accent and we're just like, <laughs> it's happening and a monologue i should add that is not in the script like right. nor does it have anything to do with the script at which point i'm like i don't think He's even read the script, honestly. I don't think he has any idea. Like, there is no indication that he had any idea what film we were trying to make in any way, really. Um, other than that it was called The Green Hornet and there was a villain in it. Um, and so, so he does his whole thing. Um, Green on it. It was like, I remember just, being, oh no. And then it ends and he's kind of like, it's as though like he's just like landed like a backflip and like he's waiting for the reaction applause at which yeah. point everyone just, everyone looks to me to like, <laughs> to express the group reaction to this. And I was like, okay, I, I'm so uncomfortable and I'm not gonna, I, you know, again, my acting <laughs> anything, skills in general right. are up he, for he debate. All that stuff's say, awkward. I was just like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I was like, it was okay. Cool. Thanks. We should talk about it. That's not how we pictured the character. And I clearly didn't give him the reaction that he wanted because he instantly just like felt like was like sullen. <laughs> like oh. to, 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 and then, uh, Amy's trying to recover. She's like, well, I'll sit down for dinner. And then we sit down. And almost right away, he just gets up and walks. He's like, I got to go. And he just gets up and leaves. And you bummed like, him out. You can do that? That's yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we could be doing that. He just No goodbye, him. nothing. Nothing. No, he, nope. said, he literally said, I, got, I think he said, I, I, I got to go do something. And then he got up and left. And kind of like, it wasn't no goodbye. It was kind of like, eh, like, you know, a, a brisk wave and a walk out the door. <laughs> yeah. But I do think back and think maybe we should have just gone for it, honestly. You want to know something, Seth? When I was reading about it in your book, I went, I got to admit, I want to see that movie. I don't know what the I fuck I'm going to do. Yeah. It's not like the movie was well-received as it was. It would have just been yet another element that, as an but agent the, of chaos, it would have been interesting to see. But here is, the most brilliant, here is the most brilliant observation that you made in your book regarding this and everything about Hollywood, and it really is quite brilliant. And I remember I underlined it because I, I didn't want to forget about it. I even wrote it down. You were talking about the craziness of Hollywood and actors, but you said musicians are even crazier. And I <laughs> yeah. said, this is a brilliant observation. And, and, and tell me if I have it right. Yeah. You said actors set up this weird world of theirs because they're pampered and all this, but they have to interact with a movie crew. They have mm -hmm. to interact. They have to act normal around people. Musicians can set up their own universe because they don't yes. have to be around any normal people. So they're Zero. even wackier yes. than actors. They're, they're totally went, He's right. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. Than most people, I assume, yes. Honestly, like, there's no reality to a musician's life. No, I'm sure you notice just a different vibe in the studio when there's a famous musician there than when there's like a famous comedian in the studio yes. or something like that. You know, I'm sure yeah. you're. I'm sure mostly the people behind the scenes who are organizing all this notice a very different vibe in the studio when there's a. But you're right musician. because Nicolas Cage, on occasion, has to deal with some normal people like yourself who are saying, "Gee, this this is nothing to do with my movie. It's great that this character." Yeah, like, is 
everyone does. And if you watch a movie, and I've seen it, I've seen the most famous people. Like you just, and, and now, and when I watch movies, I read like you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you're just like, oh, like right now, Brad Pitt's in a scene with just like some guy, and like knowing how films are worked, like they're alone in this car together for 14 hours. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like like he can't avoid this guy. Like he's being forced to interact with this person who, by all means, is like a guy who probably has, makes you know like seventy thousand dollars a year and has a very normal life. You know, um, and and a musician never has to be in that situation literally ever like when when a musician's in a car with james corden is probably like the most normal person they're in a car (laughs) with ever like they never have to they can completely pick and choose every human they interact with ever and then they walk onto their their world of this tour and this you know these stadiums and the the studio i've been to studios with musicians which is a very weird environment as well it's very curated it's very specific um and yeah it's you know you were able to just not to say actors are not able to do this but i think with much greater ease you were able to completely dissociate from any reality if you're a musician that you you read about the life (laughs) you read about the life of like prince you know who had like you know these bizarre eating habits and and he had he would eat at five in the morning his you know dinner and 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 everything was backwards in his life and (laughs) he'd show up in his purple robes and with high heels on and like and all of it is treated as normal because he can literally interact with whoever he wants to yeah and if there was someone who looked at him weird he'd he'd get rid of that person that's right (laughs) (laughs) what you even said you had this revelation about the acting world and the musicians world you were back Backstage at the Grammys, when you had this revelation, you said it was yeah. so fucking wacky. Like everybody had their own green room and their own set of yeah. rules, and it was crazy. Yeah, it was really. Yeah, the Grammys were like. Yeah, I'd been to a lot of award shows. I've, I've presented Oscars before. I've been, you know, I, I. But I had never been to a music award show, and to see the infrastructure that was set up to accommodate three dozen famous musicians was staggering and yeah like the oscars you're all kind of thrown together there's just one room where you know it's just like leonardo dicaprio's vaping in this corner and dustin hoffman's in this corner and everyone's just kind of like you know like jennifer aston's just like sitting on the like the arm of a chair (laughs) she's talking to someone it's like it's like us it's what you would imagine and then you go backstage at the grammys and it's like every musician has their own one of those (laughs) filled with their own people (laughs) their own entourages <laughs> and they never see anyone else there's 40 little different parties going on for each personal musician uh, well yeah, you even looked, t- wow. you, you, yeah and you even told a throwaway kind of story but i know this kind of embarrassment and shame because i've had it happen to me 20 times backstage at these events where i don't like going because i don't want to know if someone doesn't like me i don't want to know if no. someone's a pot so i don't want to know any of that shit and so you tell you talk about how like you you like you saw Beyonce backstage and you go, hey, cool, I'll go say, you know, and you're like, gee, I don't know if I should say hello or not, but why not? I'm a fan yeah. and I'm going to say hello. And you walk up and then suddenly the bodyguard comes out from nowhere, 
puts out a stiff arm and like literally like bashes you in the fucking head to to yeah. prevent you from getting near this queen, wow. you know, Beyonce. Yes. And it, it's it's humiliating and it's ridiculous. It was humiliating and I was drinking a screwdriver, which is a a bad drink, and I and I and he hit me so hard I I dumped it all over myself um oh. and got screwdriver all over my suit and literally one second after that a PA came up to me and said, "Uh we're ready for you to introduce Rihanna and Eminem now. We need you on stage." <laughs> And, and I I remember having to like position my arms in like a funny way to kind of like cover up the stain. And I actually found a picture. I was like, is it as weird as it was in my head? And I found a picture of me presenting at the Grammys that I put in the book. And my arms very much are in a very awkward position, clearly to cover up the stain. But yeah, you gotta you can't just run up on someone like Beyonce. You gotta show no, you gotta you gotta show is, reverence. You can't you gotta, come yes, in, the same thing happened to me and Lil Wayne once, actually, years ago at the MTV Awards. I saw him from far away, and I got excited and ran over and tried to say hi, and it was literally as though, like, a baseball bat hit me in the chest, and and a giant man uh, stopped me from going anywhere near him. And uh, But this is the reality that you're talking about. It, it is yeah. bizarre. You talk about an odd world. This is where people live. In some sort of bizarro land where they think they can hire a big guy to sit there and, and stiff arm a whole bunch of people, they and can. they set up. <laughs> yeah, they can do it. They get they get away with it. Um, you also wrote about, um, oh, you, you know, first of all, you also wrote about the fact that, uh, and I love this. You you bring up your Jewishness with such a casual a casual manner because being Jewish is complex. I think, especially yes. No, you know, uh, just growing up and being an outsider and all this, and and you write about it so well. But you said. There's not a lot of cool Jews out there, but Bob Dylan was on the top of the list for you, and <laughs> yes. that uh, and and that um, James Kahn is uh, a tough Jew, which there weren't a lot of uh, sort <laughs> not of role models. <laughs> yeah, why is Bob Dylan so cool? He just is. He's a rock because he's like a rock star Jew, which yeah, is not yeah. a common Jew <laughs> Jew type. There was I was yeah. at dinner with Nick Kroll once, and we were just like going through the types of Jews, <laughs> and rock star <laughs> Jew was not one of them. Like that, that's it's not even one worth bringing up because I guess Adam There's Levine a is a rock star There's Jew, and, and Bob yeah. Dylan. There's two. There's literally two. Yeah. That's it. There's, in the history of Jews, there's been two of them. I love when you say summer camp. Uh, you know. You, you, you talk about how summer camp is such a Jewish thing, and you go, you think anything with camps in it wouldn't be Jewish, <laughs> and then you then you observe that like Jews for some reason love to put their kids in places where they can mate with other Jews. They it's love like, it, it's, they even love if they it. don't care. That's what I've also found. <laughs> it's like even, you could be the least religious Jew ever and you could not give a fuck about <laughs> any spiritual tenet of judaism but you for some reason want your child to marry another jewish child and to create more jewish children right you're not even jewish hardly and yet you want your no, kids to marry another. i've seen i've seen people get in huge arguments with their families over dating non-jewish women things like that and and, and I'm like, these people are not religious. Like they don't, they don't do it. This seems no. to be the only aspect of Judaism that they care about is That's that right. you marry another Jewish person. But yet, really as someone weird. who went to a Jewish summer camp uh, myself, yeah. I, you, you do feel most at home uh, when yes. you're at that summer camp, right? It is a, a tremendous feeling to be a kid. And to be someplace where you're not the outsider, isn't that true? Yeah, it is a very powerful 
Yeah, there is something about it where you, yeah, you you feel at home. You you feel in nature. It's like something something instinctual kicks in. Your yep. your your sideburns just start to grow out. Everything you get hairier. <laughs> I don't I don't know what it is, um, but yeah, just being around all these other Jews is very it's very comforting, and I think it really. I mean, summer camp in general, I don't know if like non-Jewish summer camps are like, like my summer camp was run by children. That is also like a recurring theme throughout the book because there's this whole thing. We get lost in the woods and we almost die. But it's like, I look back. Amazing story, by the way. Our counselors were like 17, 18 and 19 and we were 14 and 15 and 16. Like it was like one year. It's like, you're not a camper anymore. Now you're in charge of the campers. And it's like, what happened? How did we get here? I love that story about you getting lost and. And you, and you point out the counselors are like two years older than you because I was a counselor on a Western trip. I was 19. The kids were 15 and 16. Yeah. I was in charge of them. And I'm like, so I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> no. what, what, how can I be in charge of you? You should probably be in charge of me, but you act the no, part. And, and you, when you're that age, like there's fully 15 year olds that are more mature than 18 yes. year olds. Like you, you find that very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's. <laughs> You know, but, yeah, it, but talking uh, about a guy who I think will be upset, but you told the truth, you know, and, and this ties into this whole anti-Semitism and Jewish thing. You you describe a, a moment in your life where um, you, you run into Eddie Griffin in an elevator, yeah. Eddie Griffin, the comedian, and yeah. uh, you're not complimentary about his comedy as, as someone who did stand up comedy and you are a funny, funny fucking guy. Uh, you say that uh, you're not a fan of his stand-up. You don't feel he's a particularly funny guy. Uh, you bash he's him pretty good. Moments. Yeah, he, well, okay, again, he had his he moments. I, I would, I would put the asterisk next to that that he did go you know, scream anti-Semitic tirade at me. So yeah. it, it does, yeah. it does like tint your view of someone's <laughs> comment. What I perhaps. love about this story, I'm going to ask you to tell because what I love about this story is I don't think he would think of himself. As anti-Semitic, he thought he was saying something perfectly acceptable. But Seth happened to he talks about Seth talks about how he's found himself in elevators from time to time. And it's always awkward. And yes. this was a particularly awkward situation where you got you were about to get in the elevator with Eddie Griffin, the comic. Yes. And and he um, said, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, he, uh, and, and, and I will, this, well, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah. So we were going to, we were in Las Vegas for a hotel opening and, and, um, me and uh, some people found ourselves in an elevator with Eddie Griffin, and he um, went. Yeah, he 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 said, uh, you know, they won't let they won't make any of my. As soon as we got in, he starts going super bad. Had just come out, you know. Right. They won't make any of our movies, uh, but they make all your movies because you're fucking Jewish, basically. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and he kept Jews run Hollywood. How could Jews, you know, how could like, you know, just a, a real Jew run, a real Hollywood Jew run. <laughs> and he even said to you, he even said to you, hey, Seth, why don't you tell some of your buddies there to make my movie? <laughs> yeah. Tell some of your uh, Jew friends if, to make my some movie. Of your, yeah. Some of your Jew. Did he say Jew friends? <laughs> I don't know how that might have been. That's, yeah. I, as I look back, those are the words that ring in my ears. But um, well, that might certainly get you a go see. Right. That sentence. Yeah. Yeah. But the well, truth well is, I th- yeah. yeah. It's the truth up. is, it was a fucked up story. My wife was there. Right. <laughs> Who's also Jewish. <laughs> well, what's so insulting about it is, and this is, it's like, well, you got to, you, you know, I'm funnier than you, but the reason you get to be in the movies is because you and your Jew friends make all the movies. 
yeah. which you know, I don't think anybody handed you anything in life. And uh, certainly you had to go and write a damn good movie because uh, the Jews were not going to be putting up money for your unfunny script if it was unfunny. No. So, uh, and as I point yeah. out in the film, Jew, the, the, the Jews of Hollywood are more than happy to make money off non-Jewish property, believe me. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, it's fucked up. You know what else I loved when you were doing your rant on elevators? The best thing. I mean, I laughed out loud. I don't do that a lot with books. So Seth's at the Academy Awards. Oh, God. And uh, Heath Ledger has died. This is yes. such a great story. And, and this is a good because you point out sometimes how idiotic you can be. Yes. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not just pointing the finger at everyone else. But <laughs> Heath Ledger won the Oscar uh, after his death. And his, joke, mother, yeah. his mother went up and accepted the, the Academy Award. And it was an emotional thing and this and that. Seth's backstage, gets in an elevator. And who is staring at him in the elevator but Heath Ledger's mom? And you walk in and you say, you know, I'm so bad at this shit, but I know I should say something. The woman has just accepted an Oscar for her dead son. I must find the right words. I must say the right thing. What did you say to Heath Ledger's mom? You I said, congratulations. You wanted to say. I think you see someone holding an Oscar, and that is your instinct is to congratulate them. That's looking back. I've obviously replayed that moment a lot of times in my head, and done a lot of work looking at myself as to why I would say something like that to someone. And the best I can come up with is you see someone holding an Oscar. It is your instinct to congratulate them. Um, Yeah, it was. uh, That was a very awkward. uh, Yeah, that was very awkward yeah you get now yeah you find yourself in a lot of strange elevators but to the eddie griffin thing honestly i thought about a lot and part and i was like if i actually thought this would hurt his career i don't think i would have read it or written Mm -hmm. written it the truth is like being anti-semitic does not disqualify you disqualify you from having a fantastic career in Hollywood, which just shows that no, what he said absolutely. is not true. And like they Mel Gibson is still already... he's still working away. Like yeah. Mel Gibson's been nominated. I think he made an Academy Award uh, nominated winning. I I presented an award. I presented an Academy Award to the movie that Mel Gibson directed. After he made anti-Semitic comments. So to say, so like, that is the truth of it is like, in my head, I was like, I, I genuinely don't want to ruin anyone's livelihood. I don't think this will. All but they also weren't already making his movies, Seth. So yes, exactly. <laughs> nothing was going to change. I don't think this will help, if I'm being honest. <laughs> no, the book is so... I don't but, think but, anyone's but, blowing but, off a copy. I don't think anyone's blowing the dust off of Undercover Brother 2 after this. <laughs> <being> like, huh. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you say that. You're right. Uh, you know, because when I was reading it, I went, oh, you know, Seth's going to get some blowback from some people, you know. I mean, Gary Oldman has said anti-Semitic shit. That dude can't stop getting nominated for Oscars <laughs> <laughs> no one cares. People don't care. They move right. on. They really don't care. I, w- I wish they cared more, honestly. But the truth is, like, they don't care. <laughs> By the way, we didn't even tell the kicker to the Nicolas Cage story. These stories are so deep in your book. The The kicker was that uh, years later, James Franco did a character in a movie where he played a white uh, Bahamian or a Jamaican 
And Not then, even though he played yeah. just a white rapper, and then right. yeah. so Nicholas Cage summoned us. There was a movie he that he was attached to be in that we were maybe going to produce. So he calls us. Uh, so no, so that's what it was before the meeting. We he was like, we got to call. It's like Nick Cage wants to talk to you guys because the last interaction you guys had left a bad taste in his mouth. <laughs> we were like, yes, we understand that. He got up, did a weird scene in a Jamaican accent in front of us. Uh, we did not like it, and then within a minute he left. So I would also characterize that as a, a strange interaction. So his manager was like, uh, before you guys sign on to produce this movie that he's going to be in, we want to talk. Um, and we thought it was about the movie. We we were like, oh, yeah, we have some notes about the movie. Um, and we sit down, and right away, he's just like, did you tell uh, James about that meeting we had, the Jamaican meeting? I was like, I don't, I, I don't know. No, I don't know. He's like, cause, uh, that guy in spring breakers, uh, was that based on the character I did for you guys? And I was like, mm. no, <laughs> absolutely not. I think it was actually based on like a Florida rapper. Um, and he's like, Oh, okay. And he very clearly didn't believe me. That was like apparent <laughs> is that he, he was suspicious. I would say at best. You stole then, his great idea. Exactly. <laughs> I stole his great idea. And then we're like, so should we sit down and talk about the movie? And then again, within a few minutes, he's like, I forgot I have something else to do. And he got up and left again. <laughs> so he and, met with you because he wanted to tell you, you he guys that lifted we had his idea. The character. Yeah. Um, and we, and we didn't, but again, it was no. like, it, it didn't disappoint and the truth here is the truth i don't think after this i would i actually don't i would work with nicholas cage again like of course you second. would yes. i don't think he i wouldn't be surprised if he would not work with me in the wake of this book but i also would be surprised if he would because that tells so a, many he's a hard he's, guy to nail <laughs> tells so many i was even thinking with this green hornet he was so wacky there was some guy i i didn't know the guy who he was but you wanted him to play uh kato in the movie oh, Stephen chow yeah Stephen Chow, and you're like, great. And then he has a meeting with you, and he says to uh, Seth, I want, um, I want Cato to have AIDS in the movie. No, he wants it to rewrite was, he it. Wants, he wants him to pretend to have AIDS in the movie. Right. And you're like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and you really wanted this guy in the movie, but he insisted on putting his ideas in. Was that the yeah, problem? He, he's, he's a writer and director. Uh, he made this film, Kung Fu Hustle. He's made a bunch of movies. He's actually, and still to this day, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Like, right. And so I really was it as, as square as the peg was and as round as the hole was, I was determined to jam it in there because <laughs> I just wanted it to fit so badly. But yeah, he, what I learned, yeah, is that his storytelling sensibility was very different from ours. And he was going to direct the film as well as us oh. play Cato at first. And so that's when, yeah, these notes started going back and forth. He had all these crazy ideas. There was another one that was funny where he pitched us this thing where, Cato was controlling the Green Hornet with like a suit that he made. Um, that's like a kind of a robotic suit that Cato can control with his mind. And we were like, it's kind of like the movie, like we don't want to be, it's kind of like ripping off the Jackie Chan movie, The Tuxedo. And he was like, yes, that's exactly what this is. <laughs> what we're doing. Like, get on board. Oh, yeah, you've seen it. That's what, they, they, so you get it. That's what I want to do here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he had an idea that Cato has AIDS or pretends he has AIDS to convince Britt Reed that he, has it by because they are because they are uh trying to sleep with the same woman um 
Which, yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a confounding joke to try to explain. But if uh, I can get it philosophical. Didn't it didn't work in the movie, and we no. didn't do it ultimately. <laughs> I, I guess not, because we never saw it on the screen that that, that yeah. scene. But but but, but again, I look back and I'm like, would that have made the movie worse? Ultimately, but would that what would have happened if we did that? <laughs> it might have worked. <laughs> Seth, is the is the overall theme of one of the themes of your book? This is why I took it. That be careful when you meet your heroes. In other words, these are all people. Nick Cage. Uh, you tell a great Tom Cruise story. I, I want to ask you a question about that. But yeah. but all these people who are so successful in show business and have made so many good choices and so, you know, you admire their films and then you meet them. And sometimes it's great, yeah. but most times it's just too fucking weird, right? It's just, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, it, there's, it, there's so much weirdness. I'm thinking yeah. with, you know, with, with, with Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise yeah. is a great actor. And, and you know, Seth, Seth tells this great story in the book how he gets a call that Tom Cruise is now thinking he wants to do comedy. Yeah. And Seth's like, what the fuck? I mean, Tom Cruise, I mean, you know, what, what am I going to do with this? But he decided because of your, your, your string of hits, let me meet with Seth and he'll put me in a comedy. And the comedy yeah, really is, the, the real, yeah, yeah, the real comedy is what happened when you went to see Tom Cruise. First well, of all, <laughs> this is the movie. I, I hope they make a movie out of your book. Out I do. Of this. It's like a My Dinner with Andre type of thing. Oh my yeah. God, it's so great. First of all, I love that you had a pee so bad that you peed into a Snapple bottle to meet yes. with Tom Cruise. And you're right. The guy, you, 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 tell, you tell the story. Tom Cruise has fucking cameras all over his property. He does. <laughs> There's probably video of you pissing into a Snapple bottle. There is. I peed in Tom Cruise's. Yeah, I was driving up to his house. I had to pee so bad, um, and I didn't want. I was nervous to meet him anyway, and I didn't want to meet him and be like, "Hi, nice to meet you. Can I pee? Can I use your bathroom?" I just. It was going to be an awkward first interaction. So he had this really long snaking driveway leading to his house so i peed in it I, I i stopped halfway up the driveway kind of in the woods uh above sunset boulevard and i peed in a snapple bottle in my car um and then i uh sealed the bottle and and left it there and went on to have a very absurd meeting with with tom cruise but uh, to get to the end of yeah so then as i was leaving the meeting i was snaking back down the driveway and i as i was passing the exact spot that i peed in i noticed a red light in the woods <laughs> And looked and there was a security camera literally pointed exactly where I was being. Uh, I ball. felt your pain on that one. I love it. And the meeting was so it. bizarre. I hope it's I do in a too. file of, of Tom Cruise's blackmail uh, tape somewhere. <laughs> but the I'm meeting was so bizarre. In the, the meeting was so was bizarre. bizarre. Yeah. Because I've talked to people who know Tom Cruise and have hung out with him and they say yeah. he never proselytizes. In other words, you know, he's a Scientologist, but he doesn't really try to push it on you. But your story is the exact opposite, that, he, that you're in this meeting and he really was trying to sell you on the religion, why his religion was the best, which is such an yeah, absurd argument. Really, yeah, the, 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 I'll never forget the wording he used because I also have thought about applying it to other religions and how funny it would be. But yes. he, so, yeah, we had been meeting with him for a long time, a few hours. We talked, and he was 
And he's, and again, I say, like, I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. Like, I fucking love Tom Cruise. Like, I see every Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> like, right. I go to theaters. I can't wait. He, that man is determined to die on camera for our yeah. entertainment. <laughs> and, he does not disappoint. And, I am, and I'm okay right. with that. Yeah. <laughs> like, and this meeting, is, by the way, was at the time when he was married to Katie Holmes and he yeah, just had so a baby with her, right. Siri. Right. That was right when this meeting was, was like, it was at the peak of Tom Cruise. Like, I mean, I use the word mania in a very literal sense, I think. In but this, mania in too. But, but Seth, mania too, because he had also just jumped on the couch with Oprah. Exactly. And it, carried it, it was on manic. Um, yes. Yeah, he, he, the Oprah thing had just and And also, in the time I met with him was, there was this very weird period where he had had his child, but no one had seen his child. And there was <laughs> genuine speculation as to whether the child was real. Um, and it was the kind of thing where, like, I'd be on red carpets and, like, the joke question reporters were asked me, like, have you seen Baby Suri? Like, it was this fucking mystery, you know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, we got this call to go meet with Tom Cruise and, 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 and during this time. And so I got up there and I, I had met Katie Holm, but there was baby, I met baby Surrey, which was weird. And, and it was like, she was kind of like the most talked to. And I remember meeting this baby being like, this poor baby doesn't know this is like, she's like the most talked about person on the planet, <laughs> which is a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, and they, she just got guys pissing in their car in the driveway. Like what a terrible life. This. <laughs> it's uh, weird, but yeah. it's weird. So yeah, we met with him for hours. And not a few hours into the meeting, he goes, this Scientology stuff comes up, how weird he's looked in the press lately, kind of how, uh, yeah, just how strange yeah, but, but in general he he's said, coming across. But he said, what you said in your book was fascinating. He said, the press is trying to make me look crazy because I'm costing the pharmaceutical industry so much money because he's yes. against... Um, he's you know, against pharmaceuticals. Psycho, right, yeah. right. He's against the, any kind of uh, intervention medically with that kind of shit. Uh, yes. Against these psychiatric yeah, drugs, he was, et cetera. He thought that, which was an odd conjecture to make. Um, right. That, and, and, and yeah, that was a surprising thing to hear. Yeah, he said, I think the pharmaceutical industry is making me look bad. Um, yeah. And then he said, you should see what they do to my friend Louis Farrakhan, which was a shocking. What? <laughs> right, right, right. Well. right. <laughs> He's friends with Louis Farrakhan. What? You know, great. (laughs) The media is really out to get Louis Farrakhan. Not because of anything he says. The pharmaceutical industry hates him. Um, And then he said, and then, yeah, the wording goes, and it's like with Scientology. He said, if you let me just tell you what it was really about, if you let me just give me like 20 minutes to like really just tell you what it was about, you would say, no fucking way. No fucking way. I remember being like, I, I remember, like, the wording was, I was like, is that a good thing to be saying? Is that a <laughs> yeah, bad what thing that to mean? be saying? And I remember saying, like, if I, if you let me tell you about Jewish people, you would say, no fucking no. way, man. No fucking way. <laughs> um, and then I remember there was this very, like, loaded moment where he says this to us. If you just gave me, like, 20 minutes to tell you about this, you would say, no fucking way. And me and Jenner look at each other and I'm like, is he going to bite? Am I going to bite? Are we, how, can we come out of this? Are we strong enough to have him? <laughs> 
do this to us and not be converted? I don't know if I am. I, I, I'm a weak, I'm generally a weak-willed, weak-minded person, I would assume, on the grand scale of people. I can, if they got him, they, what chance do I have? You know? Um, and thank God Judd was like, eh, I think we're good. Like, let's just talk about movies and stuff like that. I was like, right. Woof. Dodge that bullet. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how you can get sucked into stuff? Because, you know, thank God Judd, Judd Apatow you're talking about. Judd was with yes. you because he was strong enough to say, listen, let's just talk about the movies. Because sometimes you know, around a big star, you're kind of like, okay, I better become a Scientologist. I, no, I, exactly. I, I see the temptation. If I was there alone, yeah. I would, I'd be singing a very different tune right now. I'd be telling you that Xanax is poison and that you know, your thetans are the problem. <laughs> Seth, when I was reading his book, he said, I wonder how difficult it is for Seth to negotiate Hollywood in the sense that you see so much comedy and absurdity in these meetings you take and the people you meet. It's got to be a weird industry. Like on the one hand, you love your industry and you love telling stories. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like everyone seems fucking nuts in the book. You know what I mean? There's so yes. much nuttiness. It's, yeah, it's, it's I, I don't difficult. know any other industries, so I don't know if it is any. I assume it's more eccentric than I like. I don't know if like you know the finance industry. Like there are other industries, but it has that to seem be crazy. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I talk to guys in in like so called straight businesses, even like lawyers and stuff. They tell me everybody's fucking nuts too. So exactly. Just, I, I guess I guess it's just the absurdity of any business, or you know, yeah. it's just like when you were talking about going to meet with. I mean, you went to the to the pinnacle. Spielberg and George Lucas. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't know all these meetings that you had and everything, but of course, I mean, when you have, when you make hit movies, you get to beat the big guys. Yeah. And you know, I guess on some level, if you're like me, you go, George Lucas must be the most amazing together guy on the planet. And so when you walk into a meeting and he's spouting the kind of stuff you point out in the book, you gotta say to yourself, my my whole illusion. Like, who's running the world? I mean, if, if George Lucas <laughs> well, is, it, it's true, and it's something that it's like I, uh, it, it's a it's a thought that I had had. It's I started so young that I assume I always assumed it's because I was younger than everyone that every I, I thought that there was something I was missing. I'm like I'm like you know I'm 16 or 17 or 18. I was a writer on a TV show when I was 18 years old, 19, and I'm surrounded by 30, 40, you know, people who are very brilliant, but people who I would look at sometimes just the older people I was surrounded by and how they were navigating their lives. And I'd be like, they don't seem to know a lot more than anyone. <laughs> they just are older. That's a great revelation. I wish I had had, Seth, I wish I had had that revelation at a young age because I believe they knew something, you know, I would yeah. be like, yeah, well, they I kind of did until recently. Honestly, I also did. I, I was telling myself like, you're missing something like you, you, you're just, there is a thing you're not getting it. And truthfully, I think only in recent years um was i was i when i became the age of the people that i was surrounded by i now you know judd i think was in his early i'm like almost 40 now i remember when i met ben stiller for the first time he was like 35 maybe or something like that like um and these guys seem so old and to me which was is so funny at the time but but now that i'm that age and older i'm like oh no i was right that no one knows shit and it's right. actually something that comes up in the obama book which um i had read which and he talks about like you know you assume as you ascend to the highest 
levels of power in the world that you're going to be surrounded by smarter and smarter people. Yeah, and he's to, like, you're I, not. He's like, no. you get to the biggest, the most important room there is in the world. And you look around and you're like, it's the same people. Like, it's yeah. the same people have been around my whole life. These people just have a much more important job that they are not equipped to do, probably. You know? Is my memory serving me right? Was When you went to meet with Spielberg, you had just smoked a joint, right? I mean, yes, you we were very yeah, high, right. Yes. <laughs> because when I read about you, I go, oh, my God. I sometimes feel like you're a guy going off the cliff. I go, why is he smoking a joint? Just, you know, I, he needs his like I'm, I'm reading this thing like it's, it's, it's somebody else adding dramatic tension to the book. Yes, yes, oh, no. like, He's oh, not no. going to be I, able to deal with this. I go, this is going to be a disaster. And yet this is a big meeting. We're talking about Spielberg. This should be important to Seth. He should sober up for this fucking deal. And you're like, no fucking way. I mean, I read, I read this book, and I just my mouth hangs open. But why was Spielberg calling you again? I forget. It was. I mean, why did he call he you? He had an idea. Um, it's funny. He he wanted to make a movie about a video gamer who uh, used his video game skills to save the world, basically. Which was, and and me and Evan right. also were wanting to make a movie about that. Both of us wanting to kind of base our movies on this movie, The Last Starfighter, which the the rights are you can't get the rights for it um but that was the original idea was he he was kind of pitching us on that and we were already kind of independently working on a, a similar idea so in the end we kind of went off and did our own ideas but what's funny is that a few years later the same year he released ready player one which is essentially about that and we had this show future man which is also essentially about that so we did go off and make our own things but yeah i had this meeting with uh steven and um and he came into the meeting with george lucas like which was mind-blowing like for for a film right. fan, it's truly like the most miraculous thing you could ever experience. Yes, and then and um, then Lucas was and then wearing. Lucas you said Lucas is wearing a, a denim, an all denim outfit. You said all <laughs> like, denim, head to toe denim, <laughs> and, and it blew your mind. Sheets. A lot of very rich men seem to settle into that. I don't know why. I see Jay Leno wearing that. I see. Yes. I see. It seems to draw when you hit a certain <laughs> level of wealth. You're just like fuck it. I'm going all denim i don't want to think about this shit i got other things on my mind i just head to toe denim it's a bad look isn't it seth it's like when i see jay leno in it i'm I'm, I'm, you know i see him with the denim shirt and the denim pants and he's working on his fancy cars i'm like dude you gotta you gotta make some match wear the denim pants but not on top of the denim shirt no one's no one's knocking denim it's just there's there's too much denim you could have too much (laughs) denim um do you think do you think spielberg was annoyed that you show up higher he had no idea you were high. You you concealed it pretty well, right? I mean, you didn't. Uh... Uh, he had no idea, and he seems to not care about that stuff. I, honestly, right, right. in a way, I thought maybe he did, but he seems to not care. <laughs> right. And and, 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 um, and why was Lucas so weird? It was like I forget what he said to you. But it, was, it was he like... thought? Um, it was uh, he thought it, it was bef- it was. I think it was either late 2011 or early 2012, and I don't know if you remember at the time, people thought maybe the world was going to end in December of 2012. There's right. a there's a movie about it that came out. Um, the Aztec calendar, I believe, or ends in that year, and that is yeah. where this philosophy came from. But yeah, so we sit down. 
And George Lucas, uh, Steven Spielberg takes a call, so he's kind of busy doing something. And me, <laughs> he's and heard Evan, this already. Uh, exactly, uh, <laughs> kind of yeah. like that. So and me and Evan are uh, are alone sitting with George Lucas, and yeah, he instantly goes into. I feel like the conversation was this abruptly. We were thrust into it this fast. How's it going? Not great. 2012 is coming, and the world's going to end. <laughs> <laughs> Which <laughs> great great starter, like great opener. Um, Where do you go? Yeah. And again, I think we thought he was joking, and he claims to be joking. Like he he says he was joking, but mm-hmm. nothing. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing about the conversation implies that there was any humor to it in any way, shape, or form. He really seemed to think the world was going to end in 2012, and. Yeah, and at which point, and to this day, I am confused by this and do not know the reality, but he implied he had a spaceship. That was the implication, was (laughs) that that in in preparation for this event in 2012, there was an implication that he had some sort of contingency plan to leave the planet. (laughs) Um, And and it's a weird thing when someone tells you that, but then you're you're looking at him and you're like, if anyone... Maybe has a spaceship. It's a billionaire who's obsessed with space. <laughs> like who? Who else maybe has their own secret spaceship? And like maybe it's, it, I, it seemed believable, honestly. And, and maybe that's why he sold the whole Star Wars franchise to Disney maybe because to nothing mattered spaceship. anymore. Yeah, he, he had to build the spaceship. He needed the dough. He needed liquidity to build the spaceship. Maybe the spaceship builders were like, "We need cash. We need we need two billion dollars cash there, to construct this thing." What happened? happens in that moment is your whole reality shattered in other words are you like jesus christ this is the guy who invented star wars and he's talking about possibly having a spaceship to escape the planet earth you know this is what you talk about in the book you say people in hollywood have invented their own reality they're getting away with it it, it, by the way did he ever tell you where he was going to go like was he going to go to the moon or mars i wonder what the plan was (laughs) just go and just kind of watch doc doc somewhere off earth i was kind of mad was he offering you a seat if he's telling you specifically so that robin thank you that was the culmination we 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 evan my partner jokingly was like could we get a seat on it and he said no <laughs> which, which, which is what made me think it was not a joke because if you were joking you'd probably be like yeah sure you have a seat yeah sure you well, can have the best seat i'll give you you're another certainly front. you can drive the fucking thing but instead he like very seriously was like uh no <laughs> you're certainly not going to collaborate with a guy who won't give you a seat off planet Earth in the, <laughs> no, in the middle exactly. of it. I mean, fuck you. I mean, what, what, he, what is he talking about? I, a, I don't know how big this spaceship is he's built. Maybe it's small. Maybe there's very few people. Maybe this yeah, guy's got like 50. There's room for five people. I don't expect this spot. I th- you know, if anything, I was angry with you. I thought the book was going to then be. And now I'm going to tell you about the next five years that I sat with George Lucas and played exactly. my from Earth. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, your book, <laughs> this wonderful book you wrote is not really all about just celebrity stories which this thing is chock full of but also uh growing up i am really kind of amazed by your ability at 12 years old to get up on a stage and start to do stand-up comedy for people and and you know you write about your original jokes because what do you write about when you're 12 you wrote about your grandma and grandpa because you know you thought they were funny and you were someone told you hey whatever irritates you most 
yes. write about. And you were irritated by your grandparents. They weren't particularly into you. <laughs> so like, no, they like, didn't like me very much. <laughs> your original act was pretty fucking good at 12 years old. I mean, uh, thank you. It's yeah, out there. Yeah, I think it's on you. I think the show I'm referencing is literally on YouTube somewhere also. Yeah, I think like I've weird, seen it. Yeah. yeah, it's, uh, yeah, my grandparents were, were tough people. Um, yeah, my grandfather was, uh, he played football. He was in the Navy. My grandmother was, yeah, she doesn't know where she was born or when <laughs> she was, <laughs> yeah. she was born like literally in like a caravan fleeing like the Cossacks. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, they were like tough people who, uh, yeah, like they, they uh, were no nonsense and they did not mince words. They would swear. My grandmother would steal everything. That's like a big, but she was like, uh, every time if we went to a restaurant and you'd be like, this is a nice plate. And then you go to her house and she would have the plate. Like she just would, she would jack everything like knives, forks, silverware. My grandfather would literally empty the napkin, uh, things from McDonald's, the entire thing. He would take uh, like 200 napkins and just take them out to his car and put them in a box. And he's like, well, they're free. Like it was, uh, yeah, it was a wild life. But, uh, yeah, I wrote, I wrote my first jokes about them. <laughs> and you know, you talk about stand up comedy and uh, there's a heartbreaking, uh, mention in there about how one night you were, I don't know how old you were at that point, but you were doing stand up and, 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 uh, you know, and some nights were great and some nights weren't so great. But I don't know where you were, but it's one of these nights where Seinfeld, at the height of his oh, yeah. popularity of the TV show, decides he wants to go to, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I actually had flown to L.A. Um, for my first, I'd been to L.A., but never to do comedy. So I think I was 15 years old, and I flew Jeez. to L.A. to do stand-up, to audition for the Just for Laughs uh, Comedy Festival, which is a Canadian festival, but still, the auditions were in Los Angeles, which was weird. And so I had two shows. I had a show at the Improv. And then I had a show at the comedy store. And I mean, it, I like literally grew up watching like an evening at the improv. Like it was one of the reasons I wanted to do stand up comedy. It was like this legendary thing for me. And the comedy store, obviously, also I heard of my whole life, you know. Um, so yeah, I get to the improv. Uh, and because I have two shows, it's like early and it's the summer in LA. So it, it gets, uh, it gets dark late. So like it's still light out, which is always a weird time to be doing stand up comedy. Like you just don't want to right. be doing stand up when it's light out for some reason. And I remember being there. It's maybe six or seven PM or something like that. And I'm about to go on and it's a terrible crowd. It's like the room is like a third full with like day drinking tourists or some shit, you know, people who are just like wandered in and no one's not a hip room. Well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Not a hip room and no one's doing very well, but my time is approaching. And then right before I go on, my manager comes up to me and he's like, Jerry Seinfeld's about to show up and, and, and he's going to go. And then you're going to go after him. And I'm like, I'm going to go after him. Like <laughs> what? I don't, I don't want that. I, can, can he wait? Um, and they're like, no, he, he doesn't want to wait. He's just going to show up and buck right on the stage, basically. And I'm like, yeah. he's not here yet. And, the, and the, this guy's almost done. So maybe I can get up there before. And literally at that moment, I see like a 1950s, like fucking like Hitler's Porsche pulling up, you know, and like, and <laughs> probably was Hitler's Porsche. <laughs> yeah, exactly. was. And yeah. out steps Jerry Seinfeld. And literally like without, like, as they're, it's like he steps out of the car as they're saying like, and we have a very special next guest. And like he somehow his time did it away where like he gets out of his car walks right past me as they are saying his name he enters the room and walks onto the stage basically and just like 
destroys. And he's preparing for his big special, I'm telling you for the last time, which is like all of his best material, literally, from like his whole career. So he's getting up there talking about missing socks and fucking horses and all this shit. Like literally like the most the classic Seinfeld jokes, like the, the some of the funniest jokes ever written. And he's just like annihilating. And I was standing in the back just like fuck this guy <laughs> like, like, <laughs> how dare he do this <laughs> to what? you a fucking monster <laughs> but, but really when you think about the reality of your life at that point you had flown from canada to yes! los angeles at 15 years old to audition have you ever met jerry have you ever uh yeah i was on his show i i, I since right. then comedian. was on uh i was on the comedian i was on like the seventh season of it I, he was not clamoring to get me trust me <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think Ricky Gervais had been on it eight times before I was on it once. <laughs> it's always nice when you're on someone's show and you very clearly are like, you're so far down the list. <laughs> right. Like, I've never been more clear. They were just, they were just like, really? We're at him? <laughs> like, how, how many seasons does the show have to be on? It's almost like Jerry was saying to you, I don't really consider you a comedian, but look, no, we're, exactly. we're at the bottom. We're at the, not, we, we've gone just, through everything. I have a car. At this point, the car, I just need someone to sit in the car with me. That is the more important element. <laughs> What was the car that Jerry selected for it you? It was like I'm a curious. piece of shit. It was like a bluesmobile. It was. It was like an old pop car. It was like a like he couldn't even give me a nice car. You oh, can God. see, like I'm not even gonna waste like a lovely car on this person. <laughs> Did it go well? I mean, or was it? No, uh, it was very awkward. I would say. I think it really? was incredibly uncomfortable. Um, Did you tell was, Jerry? I would, I would describe it as awkward. Yeah, I would really. Say. I, Why? I couldn't stop sweating. I was sweating. Profusely, because I was uncomfortable. <laughs> but but Seth, you're such a great storyteller. How could this not have been? Uh, it just somehow that you guys didn't vibe, or were you still just having I the shakes? Maybe having... we did. If you watch it, I would yeah. say it is a clear representation of two people who are not exactly vibing with one another. <laughs> 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 Wonderful, <laughs> Seth. Do you, do you, do and you, I told him the story, yeah, and it's like it was like nothing. Like I was like, you know, I was fifteen, and it was as though I was like, you know, I really like to drink water. Like that was. <laughs> he was probably like, yeah, like, of course right, I yeah. killed, yeah. and of course yeah, I, like, yeah, yeah, who cares? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I would think it he'd be I I, said, I, the least interesting thing you could possibly say to another person. <laughs> he was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> You know, I have this amazing story that you like really impacted my life in a lot of ways. Okay, cool. Anyway, <laughs> well, it's that kind of honesty I love about the uh, book. You know, even when you're writing about your parents and your dad had Tourette's, which was yeah. uh, which I've was uh, you know, a little bit, but yeah, yeah. You said that in the book, but I don't detect that with you. You say you have certain. I'm pretty twitches. good at like uh, not. You know, at this point, I control it pretty well, but um, I'm fidgety. I mean, I, I do. I, I'm I'm constantly fidgeting with things. Also. <laughs> Does that weed helps. relax the, you know, there's so Very many great so. drug stories and <laughs> there's one horrible story where you decided I'm going to become a drug dealer and I'm, I'm going to, I want to tell, <laughs> I, want, I want you to tell that, but, 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 but does weed in a sense relax the Tourette's? Um, yes. Yeah, weed weed relaxes everything. And like, it's funny. I was actually, I, there was this interview in the New York times where my dad gave a quote <laughs> And he had never, it's funny because sometimes you read an interview about yourself and you see a quote from your own father and you're like, oh, he's actually never said that to me. So that's nice. But he talks about how he feels like weed kind of relaxed every cell in my body a little bit, which, um, which I agree with. Like, I think it does like, it, it, it very much has like, um, 
uh, an effect on me where it it kind of stabilizes me to some degree as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, because you said it in the book, and I, I, I've never heard someone explain weed this way, and it made sense to me because I'm not a weed smoker. I was. Mm-hmm. I did every drug you can name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but um, when you said, you know, it's funny. You said this in the book, and it really hit me. You know, you, you buy sneakers for your feet. No one says you need shoes, but yeah. yet you're willing to say your feet need some help or your yeah. hands might need gloves in the winter yeah. or your heart needs exercise. But no one ever talks about the brain might, in no. fact, need certain help in order to cope yeah. with the difficulties of life. And, yes. and, you're th- and, and you said, I believe weed for me. You're not saying for the world, but for me, yeah. weed lets me get through life in a way that is more pleasant and helps my brain in the same way sneakers help your feet. Yeah, and I think people stigmatize. People are weird about their brains. Brain, like, and it's funny because I also have this Alzheimer's charity where we do work with a lot of neurologists, and it's like I never thought like my the fact that I smoke weed all the time and the fact that I have an Alzheimer's charity would ever meet at any point. But where they do meet is is in the realization that people are so strange about their brains and that they just don't like thinking about their brains. Like brain health is something that our charity talks about a lot. And what's interesting is most people, like if I was to ask the average person, like how do you keep your lungs healthy? They'd say like, oh, you you don't smoke. Like how do you keep your body healthy? Like, oh, you you exercise. If you ask the average person, like how do you keep your brain healthy? They, like I bet the answer most people will give me is like Sudoku or like a crossword puzzle or shit like that, which is literally like so useless on the grand scale of things as to how to actually keep your brain healthy. Like it is a body part. Like well, there are old else. age homes filled with people who did Sudoku, you know, <laughs> exactly. wandering into the wall. But, yeah. but you can do things to literally keep your brain healthy like any other muscle. You can keep your heart healthy. You can keep your lungs healthy. You can keep your brain healthy. And just like we do things to keep our hearts healthy. And if you have, you know, if no one stigmatizes them, no one's like, what's wrong with you? Like, why do you need to exercise to keep your legs strong? What's wrong with you? Why do you need to, why do you need to rub Bengay on your legs? Because they hurt. What's why there's something wrong with you that you're, you're addicted to Bengay. There's like, it's a crutch for you. You can't function without it. And the truth is it's like, Again, with every other part of the body, we are very okay with the fact that we have things that help make them more comfortable. You know, well, glasses, everything, gloves, yes, shoes, glasses. clothes, you know, toilet paper. Like, no one's like, how dare you use toilet? Like, you're denying the natural state of shitting. Like, like <laughs> that's not, that's not how we are. We accept, like, our bodies are fucking weird and we, we need to create a thing to wipe the shit off our asses. Like, well, and like, how how come that's okay? But as soon as you're like, you know, my brain feels like it could use a little something to get me through the day. Everyone's like, there's something fucking wrong with you. Like, uh, and that is what's so strange is like, we can accept our bodies are not perfect in some capacities and that we need help and tools and things like that. But as, as whenever it gets to the brain, people like Tom Cruise are like, no, you should not need help. You should not need tools. It's it's within you to fix this problem, um, which is not true, you know. You know, it's funny because just this past weekend, supporting your argument, I, I saw uh, in the New York Times, it was one article about uh, the amount of research going into ecstasy, whatever the, yeah. the technical name for ecstasy is, that they're now. MDMA. 
Yeah, psychiatrists are now using that with great success. And the other article was certain diets like the Mediterranean diet. It was just this past weekend. Yeah. Are They're doing these blind tests and they're finding people's brain health is oh, yeah. and mood is completely affected by every food. And, and possibly sure. this MDMA is a big breakthrough. So, you know, who's to say what's helping the brain and what isn't? And why are we so closed off to that idea? Of what I think it's just we don't like life. to think about. I think brains are scary to people, and so they just don't like to think about it, honestly. <laughs> like, it's so mysterious that it just, it, it puts people off. Like, and I think the fear of losing your mind is is so scary to people that they just don't yep. want to think about it, honestly. Um, And the idea that, like... Because if you're acknowledging you need to do things to keep your brain healthy, you are implicitly acknowledging that your brain might become unhealthy one day. And I think people would rather just not even think about that. The um, most brilliant But yeah, line. like you're saying, I mean, with Alzheimer's and dementia, like they're finding, I think, something like, I don't know the percentage, a high percentage, 30 40% even more maybe of cases are completely preventable by lifestyle changes, um, diet and exercise essentially. Um, and that's brain health. Like, but most people, again, doctors don't even treat, teach brain health because a lot of them aren't even trained to, it's like, so not a thing people talk about. You had the most brilliant, like talking about health, you, you, you had a brilliant observation in your book that I loved. This is such a great line. I'm wondering when you came up with this, but you were talking about your first weed experiences and your friends would go celebrate with those Slurpees. You call them big ass Slurpees, you know, which yeah. are basically <laughs> all sugar water, you know. Yes. And and you said um, eventually you went to the doctor and they said uh, the, because you had so many Slurpees and so much sugar, you were pre-diabetic. And then your comment <laughs> was this. And this is what was brilliant. You said, but aren't we all <laughs> and I love that. Yes, of course we are. We're but, all pre-diabetic. Yeah. <laughs> Until we're but diabetic. You, but of course, like all great books, you have shitting stories in there. And you Oh yes. Um yes. The all great your, books. Like all great I love shitting stories. And Seth has this, no this shortage had, of them. I got a doozy. <laughs> He's got a doozy. He had met his uh, the who now wife. Uh, Lauren's her name, right? Lauren. Yes. And uh, you were falling in love. And you even said in the book, all I ever wanted was a fucking girlfriend. Even when you were yeah. a kid, just want a girlfriend. Me too. I just wanted someone to love me so badly. Yeah. You know, I wanted someone to, not to fuck me, but to love me, to, to yeah. care about me. Yeah. I it, wanted to be in a, yeah, I wanted to be part of a relationship. It just seemed, it seemed nice. Um, so yeah, I had, I finally got a girlfriend, Lauren. Um, and very early in the relationship, um, I had my friend at Nick Stoller, actually, the guy who directed Neighbors, he, he had a bachelor party in um, Mexico. Um, and when, I, when you go to Mexico, everyone's like, don't drink the water and don't eat <laughs> freshly rinsed vegetables. Um, uh, uh, and for whatever reason, I had a lot of salad. That I, I don't even eat a lot of salad normally, but I, for whatever reason, I think when someone told me not to, I think as soon as they're like, don't eat the salad, I was like, fuck you. Like, don't tell me the fuck. I'm on fucking vacation. I eat all the salad I want. Um, so I ate vegetables and salad, and then I went... The, the the bachelor party ended. I went back. Uh, I went back to L.A. Lauren picked me up from the airport, which felt very adult um, and very like meaningful. It was the first time I cool. ever had 
a girl do that, you know. Um, we went back to my place, and she she spent the night, which was very lovely. And, uh, you know, again, it was very early in our relationship, so it was all very exciting. The next morning, every morning, uh, she worked at the time, actually, at the Universal lot um, in the same building I met Steven Spielberg in later. So, uh, and so uh, every morning, I would walk her out to her car um, before she drove to work. Sweet. Which was to be yes. a gentleman, it was sweet. Yes. So that morning... I uh, got up um, and was getting, I got dressed and I was in the bathroom. I was looking at myself in the mirror, just kind of being like, you kind of did it, man. Like you, you're in a relationship. You're going to walk this girl out to her car. Everything's going great. And then I uh, shat my pants as, as terribly as a human possibly could. Um, no warning. Just, just a, came a flying full out. Shit. <laughs> full shit. <laughs> like uh, a complete, like not like, like a complete shit. Like, <laughs> and then at that moment, Lauren pops her head in the bathroom and is like, you ready to go? Well, you ready to walk me out to the car? And we were early enough in the relationship that I could not be like no i just shat my pants absolutely yeah, not romantically i was yeah. concerned that that would that would be bad and yeah. so girls I get turned like, off by that i've noticed when you yeah, pair, i think yeah, i've yeah. heard that's not a cool thing that's right uh, and so i was like yeah let's do this ready to walk you out and i live on like a second story walk-up apartment and i walk down and she has not smelt it thank god and then we get how to is the that possible I'm, seth seth how i don't is it know possible? honestly I think maybe I like rushed down. Maybe I like hustled down the stairs, or maybe I sent yeah. her down before me and kind of followed her up a little bit. And right, then so you I'm didn't just, waft like, into her face. <laughs> exactly. The wind was in I your stayed, favor. I stayed uh, upwind. <laughs> you yeah. just got to stay upwind. And then we got to the street, and I remember hoping her car was parked close, and it was not. It was like a block up. <laughs> it was like uh. a block away. So I'm just like, because like once you've shat yourself, the last thing you want to do also is walk a block. <laughs> <laughs> in, in any direct just you're just it's like a working weird it in there just like yeah. and all you're just filled with like what is happening down there what is the situation how much how worse is, is every what I'm, I'm, I'm squishing it around i'm smearing oh. it around in there it's just a terrible thing you're with a and woman so, oh. exactly and oh, so horrible. i'm just i'm walking into her car and i know she's gonna like hug me and kiss me when oh. we get to the car and that I'm, I'm like playing that out in my head just like how do i keep my ass out how do I just like, how do I keep this going? <laughs> by some miracle, I got her to the car. I guess I stuck my ass as far away from her as possible. I kissed her. She drove away and she never found out about it. I just, I remember standing there on the street, like covered in shit, just watching her drive away, being like, maybe one day you'll marry that woman. Oh my God. <laughs> you got to away with murder. You really did. There are so many stories in the book. I know I've kept you a long time, but. Was oh, that was no problem. I mean, man, you were talking about, even when you started writing, he, Seth, when he was a kid, he was doing stand-up, and then he got a job to write jokes for a moil, the guy who does circumcisions. <laughs> you know, a like, needs jokes? It, <laughs> that's what I That's thought. the point in the book. <laughs> Seth got paid to write yeah. jokes that i forget the guy the guy the guy pulled up in a ferrari or something yeah so i he saw me do stand up and he gave me his card and was like will you write jokes for me and, and his card said he was a moil and so i wasn't i was confused like does he want jokes for his moil service and i'd never been to a circumcision also so i had no i had no idea what actually was even happening at these fucking things like i just knew i knew they cut the tips of the the dick off dick. of the baby 
and that's really all I knew. So I was just like, is that a situation where jokes are at play? Is that, I, I kind of pictured it. It's, it's like, it's like a surgeon coming to you and being like, you know, I perform rhinoplasties, but I want some bits to warm up the fucking crowd for it. It's like, what? Um, so he did in fact want jokes for his service. And he was like, I, I, I thought it'd be good to like break the ice a little bit. So, okay, that actually kind of makes sense. You know, people are nervous. Um, so he said he would pay me 50 bucks a joke that I wrote. Um, and I had like a week and then, yeah, he picked me up from school. Uh, there was a seven 11 across the street from my high school. So that's where we all hung out. And one day after school, <laughs> I was, I was there with my friends, uh, Sammy and Evan. And, um, I was like, this, uh, Moyle's going to come pick me up after school and, uh, it's going to be fucking awesome. You're going to pay me all this money. I wrote 10 jokes. So I got 500 bucks. Yeah, how old were you and, then, uh, at that point? I was like 15, 14, maybe 14. Like yeah. That. So it was a big deal for, you know, 500 bucks is a lot of money. Um, and so, uh, he pulls into the parking lot in a Ferrari. Um, at which point my friends are like, don't get in that man's car. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I mean, what was a Moyle doing with a Ferrari? My head was spinning when I was I reading this. No, this dude, what? I mean, I guess you and of pay course, what they charge when it comes to cutting your son's dick. <laughs> like, it's a big business. You don't want to negotiate that. You don't want to be, you don't want to get right. the discount guy to do that. <laughs> but, but by the way, I should point out, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that uh, the $500 was your way to buy a ton of weed. Everything I was going to buy a ton weed. of weed. That was my <laughs> Yeah. But that's why you needed the uh, 500. Actually, shrooms. I wanted to buy a ton of shrooms. Shrooms, um, right. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, so my, I was like, why? My friends were just like, don't get in the car. And I was like, why? And they were like, dude, like, this guy's, his job is revolving around little kids' dicks. And you were a child, <laughs> and, and you were about to get alone in the car. with. And this guy's got a fucking Ferrari. Like, what kind of, like, who, like, what, what car is more appealing to a child? Like, so here you are, about to, this guy's life is revolved around the penises of children, and you're going to go get in this fucking car with this guy? And, and it, it hadn't occurred to me at all. Like, I, I was just blinded by the money. And I remember, it's like, it was like the opening of Mystic River. Like, I just was like, I don't know, I was like, I think I gotta get in this car with this guy. And my by they were like, don't do it. And I was like, I think he's going to give me $500. And so I got I got in the car. And uh, he did not uh, do anything untoward except try to rip me off. Honestly, he didn't want to pay me. He was like, I want to only give you 50 bucks for the jokes that I'm going to use. And I'm like, well, that's fucking bullshit. Because what, what if you don't use any of these fucking jokes? And I just spent a ton of time. Do, like, you can't do that. That's like if you like go to a restaurant, you get order a bunch of food and just pay for what you eat. Like, you, you pay for all right. <laughs> If you don't like it, that's on you, man. Um, so he. But did what a ballsy me- kid! What a ballsy kid you were! I mean, you like like a lot of kids would have said, "Okay, you know, just pay me for the ones you use." You were like, "No, fuck you! I'm going to pay. I'm going to work." I remember and- being like, "Fuck you!" to this guy because also he had a Ferrari. I'm like, you can't claim you don't have the money. Like bad play. Also, like don't pick someone up in a Ferrari and then try to fuck them over when it comes to the payment. By like, the way, I knew this guy had money. <laughs> if there's one thing this fucking guy had, it was money. <laughs> I was shocked how good the jokes were that you wrote for him. Did you, I, I don't recall them. Uh, do you? Re, what, what, what was? Just give me a couple of them because people would be amazed that you wrote these. Some, for, <laughs> do you I remember? My mother had found them for the actual. He still tells the jokes. Is how yes. I was able to find the jokes. Is um, there was one about. Um, like oil, there was like a chainsaw joke. Like, give me a second while I oil up the chainsaw. That was one. There was one about um, like. 
Like, how many kids? Like, he's going to be the coolest kid in nursery. How many kids his age have survived a knife fight? That was one. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> one about, like, uh, I can't make, it's like, I can't make salad at home. I go through a half hour service before I can cut up the carrot just out of habit or something like that. It, it was, I, mean, I was a teenager. But it was good terrible. stuff. Uh, no, but, but yeah, he, uh, yeah, he ultimately paid me the 500 bucks and, uh, yeah, and he's still, I was told this man has circumcised actually a lot of my friends' <laughs> kids because he is still operating to this day. And, uh, apparently he still tells these fucking jokes that he paid uh, 500 bucks for in, in 1996. So, <laughs> so by the way, Seth, he got his, Seth, he did. Yeah. He's still telling the jokes. Yeah. Seth's book is called Yearbook. And um, it, it really, it's great. And, and, and in fact, I'll, 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 I'll tell you this. For those of you who love lists, Seth, much like our own John Hine, has a list of his favorite fast food restaurants. Because wow. uh, you you got burned by an angry whopper one time. And I, I did get burned got by arrested. an angry whopper. <laughs> yeah. You went to Burger King. I'll, I'll set it up for you. You went to Burger King, you ate a whopper, and then you ended up on a plane right before you were taking yeah. a flight. And yeah. you had a strange reaction to the Whopper. Well, I also was very hungover and had eaten a really powerful wheat brownie. So I, there was two <laughs> other things at play. Uh, so I, I will not, I will not say it was a, yeah. So I was, I had an early flight and I was very hungover and I ate a really strong wheat brownie, which Seth, is a you love to push, you love to push the limits, don't you? I mean, part it's of my always brain is just like, let's see what happened. Well, I felt so bad. Part of me was like, I can't feel worse than this. So like the only thing that could happen is I feel weirder than this, which well, maybe the constant- is a good, is a pr- preferable thing. <laughs> the constant theme in the book is like you always go when you did acid, you go, I should do more acid. I should push it to the limits. And even with mushrooms, when you take a handful of mushrooms, you go, let me push it to the limit so I can see. But, you know, you can lose your mind doing that. You do have you to be can. careful. And I, I'm not pushing it. Right. But it's not like I'm doing heroin and being like, maybe I'll, let's see how much. Like, I'm, I'm pushing it with drugs I feel generally comfortable with, you know. Um, yes. But, yeah, I, I ate a really powerful weed brownie. Um, and I was at the airport and I was not feeling good. And then, and it was very early in the morning and I, uh, I went to a Burger King, which I would rank as the worst fast food restaurant. Probably. <laughs> That's like, what I, our I own John, Hine, our own John Hine wrote yes. a book about fast food and he ranked Burger King as the worst. I it don't is know the why. worst. It's why disgusting. is it? Why I don't is know it? why. And the, they, they call, like, the fact that their instinct was to, to call their best product a whopper is a fucking weird, like, <laughs> what, what is appetizing about that? Like, it is, it is, it is an objectively unappetizing word. Like, it is, it is totally crazy. They had a thing called chicken fries for a while. Like, that's, it, it's run by crazy people. <laughs> totally, well, as someone totally who was wrong. a fast food addict for a while in my life, yeah. I did enjoy uh, Burger King, although Roy Rogers was my favorite. But anyway, you were yeah. saying, what, to tell so, yeah, your reaction. So had, yes. It was very early in the morning, and they, I noticed a product called the Angry Whopper, which was a Whopper with like Chipotle and jalapeno peppers. Um, <laughs> and it was like a nuclear uh, spicy uh, Whopper. And I guess part yeah. of my brain was like, I think it was like electroshock therapy. I was like, maybe this will just like shock my system back into place. Like maybe this will be like just a powerful, weird thing to introduce into my body that it kind of just like realigns everything. So I ate the Angry Whopper very fast. I downed it incredibly fast. And it actually made me feel a little better for a bit. So I get on the plane and I fall asleep right away. Um, 
But the angry whopper, I think, because of all the jalapeno and the chipotle and all this stuff, I start, I, and I'm hungover and I'm really high from this weed brownie. I'm sweating like, like a, like a crazy amount. Like truly, like I am, I am, I am drenched in sweat and I fall asleep on the plane and am woken, uh, by a, a, a stewardess shaking me awake. Um, her hands clutching my very sweaty arms and she's screaming, you've had a seizure. You've had a seizure. Um, which was a very startling thing to be awoken to. Also, cause I didn't, I felt, I felt fine and I didn't, I felt good, honestly. And I didn't feel like I had had a seizure. And, but the woman was convinced I had had a seizure and she yells, is there a doctor on the plane? And it, at which I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and then a, an arm shot up and was like, yes, I am a doctor. And a doctor came over, starts checking on me, starts doing the flashlight eye thing. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Honestly, and the truth is like, I don't fucking know. Like, I, I'm high still. I have this angry whopper. I don't know what's going on. I'm just confused <laughs> and disoriented. I'm hoping, I don't think I had a seizure. I've never had a seizure. So in my head, I'm like, I don't think I had a seizure, but whatever. I'm going to let them check me out. So they check me out. I feel okay. They're like, just sit here. I turn to the woman beside me after the doctor leaves, and I'm like, did I have a seizure? And she's like, I don't think you had a seizure. Like, I think you just, she's like, you just look, she's like, you're just sweaty, and I think you were just sleeping. Like, you're just gross. Bobbling around. When I look at you, I just see a mess. I don't see a guy who, who had a seizure. Um, and so it kept, so in my head, I'm like, fine, thank God. But then when the plane lands, they come to me, and they're like, just so you know, uh, an ambulance is waiting for you. <laughs> um, because of the seizure. And that's when I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I had to like, and, and I got off the, there was a wheelchair waiting for me, a stretcher, all this shit. And I like, I was like, I, I was like, look, I had a weed brownie and an angry whopper. I think that's what's wrong with me. If I'm being totally honest, that's this a commercial a seizure. This was a weed brownie and a terrible hamburger from Burger King. By the Burger way, King. for those, for those of you who do care about fast food, and I think, um, um our, our own experts agree on this. Seth puts Shake Shack and In-N-Out at the top of his list. Chick-fil-A mm -hmm. is next and delicious, but I love how you say, and I, I like this about your integrity, he goes, but they're full of religious bigots, so I'm not going to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I have friends <laughs> I have friends who hate the Chick-fil-A, uh, you know, attitude. Philosophy, yeah. But but they all go. They don't care. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, I haven't but, been in a really long time. And I think, thank God, actually, like Shake Shack, I think, made a hamburger. That, or, like, I think, or McDonald's, one of them made, like, a knockoff Chick-fil-A thing that actually is... is Pretty good, I would say. <laughs> and then and Popeyes rated very well. Churches and KFC. As uh, yep. you went down Jack the list. Jack in the boxes. I, I give some special. Uh, I give a special mention. Yeah, Jack you like uh, Jack in the fast food? Fast food drives me nuts. When I was a kid, there was a place called Wetsons, and you would go oh, to yeah. Wetsons for burgers and stuff. And White Castle was around too, but yeah. Wetsons should have been the biggest thing. They were the first. They were before McDonald's. And I would love to read a book why Wetsons failed. And McDonald's what succeeded. What happened? What, that's your next book. You have to look what into happened? this. What happened exactly? <laughs> By the way, <laughs> he took a weird word when he did a really like deep investigative dive into what happened to Wetsons <laughs> with his second book. Never recovered. <laughs> never made another film. But, exactly. You know, <laughs> by the way, the, the the book is called Your Book, and I really, really, truly do recommend it. I think Seth's uh, honesty is fabulous. Um, there's a story in there. At one point, he was trying to, you know, he wanted to smoke weed, but he also wanted to sell it so he could make money. And it was just heartbreaking that you got jumped 
Um, yes. Yeah, it was really an unbelievable story. It was such espionage. You got jumped by some people who tried to rip you off. You made a deal to sell them some weed, and it went horribly wrong. You, you, um, you, you got jumped, and then it turned out one of your friends had turned you in. Um, yeah, so that was a crazy story. Yeah, so like we wanted to buy a bunch of weed in high school, me and me and uh, one of my friends, and we, yeah, there was a guy at our school um, named Billy Yang who uh, he, yeah, we were not that nice to him. I will say <laughs> he was a kid, like looking back, I was like, we just weren't that nice to this kid. Well, I think he was new at our school, and like I was kind of an asshole. I think at times, also in high school, like I, I, I was very self conscious, but people would laugh at me, so I think I, I would make fun of other kids just to get laughs. You know what I of mean? Of course. Um, it was all I had. Um, it's self-preservation. So, yeah. Exactly. So one day uh, this guy heard that we wanted to buy a ton of weed. So he came to us and he's like, there's some guys I know from another high school that will sell you uh, 60 grams of weed for like $300, which is like a crazy deal. Um, right. And so we were like, yes, absolutely. Um, and so they were like, we'll meet you. They, they wanted to meet us at the Crescent, it's called, which is a park in like the middle of one of Vancouver's fanciest areas, actually. And it's surrounded by all these kind of big mansions. There's like a circular park right in the middle. Um, but they wanted to meet us at like 11 p.m., late at night. And I remember we were worried we were going to get robbed. And so we, I remember very clearly being at my, in my bedroom, like preparing to go to this meet. And my sister was going to drive us because we were too young to drive. Um, and, <laughs> and we, what a I deal. Remember, I, we were like, let's bring weapons to defend ourselves. Should we need it? I had a pair of nunchucks that my dad had <laughs> bought me at a flea market, like wooden nunchucks. It's, it's like, yeah, cause you were so a karate stupid. guy. You <laughs> took karate. Yeah, like, no one has ever actually used nunchucks to defend themselves in the history of humanity. Right. So I, I put, I remember I was wearing like a hoodie with like a kangaroo pocket. And I remember putting nun, my nunchucks in it. And I remember my friend, I had like a souvenir Seattle Mariners, like miniature baseball bat that was maybe like 16 inches long and i remember like it was like a king griffey jr souvenir i remember giving that to my friend being like okay i got my nunchucks you got like this little souvenir baseball bat <laughs> like if anything goes wrong we're 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 ready here we're safe yeah. um and so we meet the guys at the park and they they were like do you want to sample the weed and there was three older they were like 18 it seemed like which to us was horrifying um and they were like do you want to sample the weed which we'd never been asked before but it, it seemed very adult and so we we're like yeah well we'll we'll sample it and so they gave us a joint of it that only we smoked and they didn't and and i and me and my friend still are very convinced it was laced with like angel dust or cocaine or something like that cuz it like really fucked us up <laughs> to a degree where we were just like did not know what was happening but i think mostly in our heads we were like this is great weed like fantastic like we're, like, we're getting this is we're getting really good weed what a deal from these guys what a deal um then they lure us. They're like, okay, now this isn't a good place. Me, come around this corner here, basically luring us into like an alley behind a school. And they're like, we'll do the deal over there. And again, in retrospect, it's like, we're so fucking stupid. Like all they're doing is handing us what is essentially supposed to be like a shoebox sized thing. Like, why does that have to happen somewhere else? Why can't that just happen? We're smoking a joint in this park. Just give us a fucking week. But they wouldn't do it. So they, we're so stupid. And we go and follow them and meet uh, them around this little corner in this alley 
And as soon as we get there, one guy pulls out a backpack. All three of them reach in and pull out butcher knives, like, like that are like a foot long, huge knives. And I'll never forget the guy's wording or how he said it. He holds up his knife and he goes, you guys are getting fucking jacked. And I was like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> It's all gone south. And and it is like time slowed down. I remember thinking, like, please, dear God, do not let my friend pull out that uh, Seattle Mariners baseball bat. Like, I just don't want this to devolve into, like, a nunchuck baseball bat butcher knife um, brawl. Because I know we will not win. Like, we we will die here. If if that is what happens, it will not go well. Um, Yeah, and ultimately we ran away. Ultimately, I remember... I I love that. You were smart. They wanted your money. I I went to my friend. I go, on the count of three, run. One, two, three. And I ran. (laughs) that fast and like it all happened so fast like i was like 10 feet away and my friend i don't think he heard me or something like that he was just standing there like what the fuck is happening and i was like run 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 and we ran away and they chased us for a little bit and then they they actually stole uh my friend had like a we called the holocaust necklace which i talk about in the book is like every jew is like a holocaust thing which is like oh there's a holocaust necklace or like a holocaust watch which is like hypothetically like a thing that survived the holocaust and so my uh, friend had a holocaust necklace and the guy stole it and he was so unhappy about it but then um this guy billy who arranged it we went to school on monday it was very traumatic we go to billy we're like what the fuck the guys robbed us he's like I, who, I didn't know that was going to happen. I'm so sorry. But we were always a little suspicious that he set us up. And Billy actually brokered a deal where we were able to buy the necklace back from the guys, um, which was also a little suspicious. But he always claimed that he had nothing to do with it. Um, and then, like, three years ago, my friend that I went to buy the weed with is at a party. And this guy, Billy, is there. And he comes up to him. And he's like, I set you guys up. Uh, and it's the, it's one of the worst things I ever did. I've always felt bad about it, but he's like, you guys were assholes to me. And so I set you guys up. What a thing to admit. I walked you into the situation where I knew you were going to get robbed and I a hundred percent did it to fuck you guys over basically. (laughs) By the way, Uh, it's an incredible story. Yeah. It's amazing. I never, yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, and here you are, you know, here you are now. You got your own weed company. Like mm-hmm. your dream has come true. And it I really was thinking has. about this. I don't know. I don't uh, know the business of this, but I said, I believe you're going to be a billionaire from weed. I think, you know, I know a lot of That'd celebrities. I'm going to tell you something. I, when I watch, I follow you on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And when you have your products, you know, your ashtrays and your weed and you have different, you've already named it like cool ice pancakes or some, I don't know what the fuck. You, yeah, there it is. It yeah, says, Diablo. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's in these little tins. Aren't they adorable? Beautiful. <laughs> Let me see it. Let me open it He's up. He's really taking time with this. I mean, that, that doesn't look like the weed that I used to buy when I was a kid. It was all seeds. That's beautiful. Look no, at that. these are really, it's, uh, yeah, they're nice big butts. We sell big butts. <laughs> How much does a, a, a can of that cost? Buds. Like a, with, the, with those buds? $65. There's 65 bucks. Wow. And that yeah. can last and you a while. And like, yeah. how I many joints can you get out of that? Uh, it's an eighth. I'd say I roll joints that are maybe a slightly more than half a gram. So uh, I'd say like six or seven joints, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Right. But I'm thinking. I, I go through like one of these a day, I would I would say. <laughs> Do you really? 
I'm yeah. I'm thinking I, that would last me a month. I'm thinking yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, like I take a hit and then put it down. But I, I'm thinking you're going to become a billionaire because I think people trust you, especially like reading your book. It's very very honest, you know, and yeah. you seem to be a man of integrity. You know, you take a stand on a lot of things, and I, I really do. I really do think that way of you, and I Thank think you. people trust you with this weed. And so putting your name on it, like, are you, how actively involved are you in this? I mean, are you? Hugely. I spend as much time working on it as, as I do film and, uh, and our other things. And we've been working on this for almost 10 years. And truthfully, like, I view it, I love it. I love weed. And, and I've seen that I'm able to talk about it and communicate what I love about it in a way that that people, other people who love weed, uh, that they uh, they it rec- they receive it well, you know. Well, and they yes, relate to it. You've um, always, so, yeah, you've always been honest about your weed use, and like I remember, like years ago, people saying to me, "Don't talk about smoking weed in yeah. Hollywood. Nobody wants to be involved with somebody who's into drugs." You know, it was a very very touchy subject, and you were always like, "Not only do I want to talk about it." I, I want to, you know, I, I, I want to be open about it and I'm not worried about not working in Hollywood. And yeah. you've always been very upfront about using weed. And I, I like that your honesty, you know, I, I trust that you would have a good product. I do. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, we worked really long. Like, if I wanted, I could have, like, slapped my name on a weed brand 10 years ago and just done right. this, you know. But we... I, we really wanted to create again, like like we were saying about the movies and stuff. Like, I wanted this to reflect me and my sensibilities and and what I love, and 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 that's why, like, you know, we spent so much time on the packaging and the design because it, to us that was very important, and to me it was super important that that weed look good and that it be treated like a good product like Mm. weed to me is one of the best products there is you know and in a world Mm. where like our headphones get beautiful packaging and you know things that are objectively not incredibly special get treated very special um I very firmly felt that weed should be treated that way and that we should create a product that feels very considered and very thoughtful. And by doing that, I thought it would destigmatize weed in general, because if something is presented in a thoughtful, considered way, it makes it seem less illicit. It makes it seem um, less controversial, you know. Um, it makes it seem more... Uh, more like any other great product that 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 is being elevated by the people mm-hmm. who are who are selling it, you know. And so that was really a lot of the philosophy behind what we wanted to do with Houseplant was like we kept saying like we want to be the company that weed deserves because like to us weed is the best product and it deserves to be treated like the best product. And 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 not a lot of other weed companies we felt were like really con- putting in the time and consideration to think like how do we present this product in a way that is new and exciting and and as thoughtful and considered as as the other great products are you know um yeah and what is the business set though like do you have to go to like venture capitalists to get the money together to no we've funded it all ourselves basically what do you mean you you put up all the money to to my friends we have a few people now um but no we we are i am one of the basically like 
yeah, I'm, me and a few other people are the owners of the company. Is it a tremendous amount of money? Are you excited about all the the uh, freedom now with with more people in the states uh, legalizing yes. pot? That's a big deal. Yeah, right? it needs to be federally legalized. Like right, and as long so as one... they're still they are still putting people in jail for it, which is fucked crazy. Right. It's but, insane. But, I but actually Seth. think they put more people in jail for it than anything, which is fucked. Um, and I think honestly, a lot of even Democrats. And people who consider themselves progressive and left wing do not understand why weed is illegal and that it is for racist reasons. Don't understand that it should never have been illegal in the first place. Don't understand that a lot of the things they've been led to think about weed are wrong. Um, and, and it's honestly very upsetting. Like I, 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 I would hope that like the people who consider themselves progressive in American politics would be doing a lot more to correct the wrongs of the the war on drugs and all this shit that's been happening in this country, you know, like, but it's not moving as fast or as drastically as one would hope. But uh, Seth, the, 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 what I was trying to get to is the business of putting up money or, yeah. you know, they always tell you in business, don't put up your own money, you know? I know. And I never yeah. have except for this. I've never put my own money into one of our movies or anything like that. I've bought right. a song here or there, things like that. Right. This was different. This I was like, I believe in this. I I I think it's something I want complete control over. That was very important. Um we didn't want to answer to investors. We wanted well, what to... is the investment, Seth? What what kind of money has I would imagine there's a lot of money that has to be put up. Like like Um, there's quite a bit of money. <laughs> is it millions of dollars that yeah, you've had to put up? Dollars. So you've taken millions uh, yeah, of your definitely. own. Definitely. Wow. Um, for sure. But it's something that I I see it as um a very unique opportunity that i that the more control we had over it the the more poised we would be to create the product that we wanted to create and create the company that we wanted to create because we also how many guys went in with you seth how many guys are involved in in your company of house um there are men and women there's uh i mean there's like five founders uh i would call us and then there's maybe 15 people who work at the company uh total wow um, yeah, and we have like a, yeah, and we'll, one day we will probably go out and raise money, that, like more infrastructural if we expand, but right. all these, because the truth is like, we, we also have these home goods and that was like a very big part of what we wanted the brand to be was we were selling these beautiful ashtrays and table lighters and things like that. And, you know, it's such a strange business that we have. It's like we sell weed and home goods. Like yeah. it is an odd. <laughs> we also sell records. We made vinyl records. Like it, yeah. it, it's such a strange, specific thing that we were like, we just want to do this on our own. We don't want to answer to anyone. We don't want to have to explain this to people. We don't want to have to like get permission to run the to to make ads or any we just want to do it it was an experiment in complete autonomy which was something that again as a filmmaker you don't have like you you know just by the nature of making a movie there's so many people involved um that you can't just do whatever you want you can't just be like i want this to be the commercial for the movie i'm gonna i'm gonna make this myself and then put it out there online and that'll be our advertising campaign like you can't do that but for this and what kind of boss we did you? that <laughs> would you would Is you allow would, would you allow would you allow your uh employees to smoke weed at the job are they allowed to they are oh yeah 
as long as it doesn't impede their uh, performance or their ability to do their job like i'd be the most hypocritical boss in the universe <laughs> if i told people but i would think weed. but i would think even if i owned like a booze company i wouldn't want the employees smoking booze i mean drinking or booze drinking. while they yeah. were uh, do- it's different while though. They were- B- booze is a, a very inebriating substance i don't think weed is the same you know? <laughs> uh, yeah are you the top oh. boss uh seth are you like in a board um, no, there's like four founders, uh, five founders again. We have a CEO, but again, we're all friends. Okay. So there's like literally okay. like, it's me, my Evan, my partner, uh, his cousin who I grew up with, <laughs> Mikey, uh, who, who is in finance, nice. a woman, Hanine, who we went to college with, it. who, uh, you know, um, some people from our movie company, like it, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's a very small, like team of people who, who, yeah, we I make was, all the decisions. I- you know, Seth, I was thinking of you this morning. You know, I was thinking, I was reflecting on the book and how much I liked it. And, 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 and I've known you now for a couple of years. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Seth's got to go I out. I first and- talked to you like 15 years ago. Yeah. I mean, we've been having this conversation for a long time. <laughs> and I crazy. was reading the, uh, of course, every time you go out and promote something, something, um, controversial or something happens. <laughs> always. Uh, you, you, always. Like you got interviewed, I guess, about the book. And they were asking you about your relationship with James Franco, who was a friend of yours. And then they started bringing up that he had sex allegations and blah, 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 blah. And you were so honest. You were like, you know what? This sucks. Yeah. This is a guy who's a friend of mine. Then I have to make a decision. Do I believe this? Do I not believe this? Am I still friends with him? And I am encountering this myself with people yeah. that I know who have been friends of mine for a long time. And it's very, very difficult when someone you know is up uh, on allegations because there's no book written about this. This is another weird thing with Hollywood. You know, it, you know, where do you draw the line with people? And I was thinking, Jesus, every time you go out and promote something, people put it to you. But I thought your responses were incredibly honest. And you said, you know what? I, I can't be friends with someone who's got this going on. It is, it's tough. Yeah. It is, it is tough making these decisions all the time about who you're going to work with and who you agree with morally and who you don't. It's tough. It is tough. It's hard. And like you're saying, yeah, there's no rule book for it. I don't, I don't pity myself though in any of these situations. Like I, no, you know, I, 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 I think it's no, kind of shitty. I mean, it's yeah, a tough, it is shitty. It, it is shitty, but truthfully, like I'm not a victim in, in any of this, you know? Right, um, right. and I understand. You know, and, and, and I, again, like, like I say in the book and like you brought up, I try to be honest and I understand that it is, um, part of who I am telling people I am is that I am an honest person and I want to be that, you know? Um, yeah. and I don't want to be someone who avoids questions or who says they don't want to talk about certain things. I, right. I don't. And even though that is true, <laughs> there are certain things I very much don't want to talk about, but I, I want to do my best to try to be as honest as I can. And, um, yeah. And some of these things are very uncomfortable to talk about, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I do my best to navigate them, but, um, but again, I don't, you know, I don't pity myself at all in these things. Like I, it, it's tough and it's awkward and it's very sad sometimes, but that being said, like my life, the trade-off is so wonderful. Like my life is great. I have a job I love. The fact that I'm heavily scrutinized, that my words are picked apart, that there's a lot of articles about me, that I'm asked hard questions about the people who I've worked with in the past, who I've had relationships with. I, 
that is a that goes along with the territory and it is an okay trade-off and they they are not things i i love but they are things that i understand that are a part of this you know and 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 i do like the good parts of my life enough that right. these, you know these things that are uncomfortable um and and also people want to hear me talk about them and so i also don't want to act like it's a thing that i don't owe to them in some way you know um if if you know me as someone who is honest and there's a certain subject that you feel like i've not addressed i understand how that would be disappointing or upsetting you know and so i try to again i try to be someone who answers yeah these types of things and speaks to them as honestly is as it I ever can, fair to know? say to someone who's interviewing you you know what fuck it man i just don't want to talk about it i i, I think I there just... is sometimes yeah like i i do think there is sometimes i think there's a time and a place but i think the truth is like i try not to if it's something that i think that people want me to be talking about people who like me and people who are fans of mine want me to be talking about they don't want to be like i like him but I just won't talk about this thing and it fucking bugs me <laughs> you know no, i don't honesty i don't want to be that person you know um i i want to be I want to try to present myself genuinely and I don't want to have these things where I'm like, Oh, uh, Oh yeah, that's the thing I don't talk about. Because <laughs> um, yeah, honestly, like it's stressful enough to do interviews like this I, I, and just do press in general to also keep track of like a laundry list of things that I don't want to talk about or that I'm trying to like navigate, uh, navigate some deception on or something like that would just be too much to do. Like, I think it is, it's ultimately easier for me to just be as honest as I can um, than to try to fabricate some perspective, yeah. you know? That's why I love the book so much. I really feel you were super honest, and I really felt like I was a friend of yours hanging out with you when you were talking to me about your life, and it was an interesting fucking life. And now you got to go nice. out and promote the book. And, um, yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you. And then it, it's weird, too, because then when they say to you, hey, Hey, what what you feeling on James Franco? And they're like, Hey, I got you on this because you're going to be a hypocrite and stuff like that. And then the guy is a friend of you. And then and then I was like, Oh shit! Then you got to pick up the phone. I, I'm not good at this. You got to pick up the phone and go. I can't be friends with you anymore or something like that. And it just I don't know how you navigate all this shit. I just don't. I don't either. No, <laughs> let me know what you do. Give me a call. <laughs> I, no, I was gonna. I'm actually gonna call you and say, How did you do that? Because I. <laughs> you know, it's not all clear. It's just not. No. Nothing is clear. It, it's. Um, it's not. But all I admired clear. your stance. Very difficult. Um, I admired yeah, your no. stance, and I admired you. that you didn't um, avoid the question. No, and I didn't. I can't avoid the question. Truthfully, um, you know, uh, I, I just can't. Like, it, it's not. It's. I, I can't avoid any question, really. You know, um, and so yeah, I, 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 I was honest. Yeah, and. Uh, that, Did listen, you make a I'm, call? Uh, you really called and said, I can't be your friend anymore? I have not made specific calls to that. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. It's just sort of known, I guess. It's, uh, Again, it's uh, such an uncomfortable thing. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you do? Boy, you made a call. That's really bold. I know. Well, I don't know. That, that, that's probably worse, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just kind of like one of those things you got to just kind of like um, – you don't make the call, but everyone kind of knows, and it's uh, very, very complex. It's not, it's not easy to navigate. But uh, listen, there's a lot of 
stuff in this book I didn't even get to. Obviously, you should read it. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. There's a great story about cum dumpsters too in this book. That I wanted to get to, <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones. Oh my god, <laughs> it is the greatest. Uh, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll leave that as a teaser. Cum dumpsters exactly. too. Exactly. Uh, that truly the, makes that's one that truly makes me laugh every time I think of it. <laughs> well, you're so right. I mean, you know, and when you watch porn, and then suddenly they have like a tribute to the victims of 9/11. Before, I mean, it is crazy. Like, what are they making? This is porn. But I mean, it's yet, porn. It what? shows how porn people, and God bless it, don't think it's like have no perspective <laughs> on what on that it's porn. <laughs> yes, but when I'm jerking off. When I'm jerking off, I don't want to think about 9-11. I'm trying to escape 9-11 no. when I'm jerking off. And you make some very to, good though. points about it. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, when you were talking about Meryl Streep and like, you know, yeah, she's a great actress, but she didn't take a dick and she didn't take six dicks in her ass to get a, <laughs> an AVN award. You're so right. I mean, uh, there's a lot more. No, to, the you, AVNs, they were, yeah, like I've been, like I said, the Grammys, a lot of award shows. I do like no one is more, and I'd say deservedly, emotionally happy to be getting the awards <laughs> that they are getting than the winners of the <laughs> AVN awards. And I get, I've seen people win Oscars. I've seen all this shit. Those people are very happy to be getting their awards at the end. They AVN, are. And they genuinely deserve it. It's fucking, it's a true accomplishment what they're doing. <laughs> well, listen, Seth, it's always, a pl- I mean, I could talk to you for 17 hours. I know. There's <laughs> enough of a life, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold you that long. I'm sure you've got other shows to do and, and places to go to promote the book. But uh, you're terrific, man. The the, the you memoir are too, yearbook. Man. I, I always Thanks. love it, and I uh, I'm glad I'm glad you read it, so you could see that I uh, reference uh, how much I love doing your show in the book and how you keep me honest. So uh, I hey, appreciate that. <laughs> I never I, I I never read a book so fast. I, I was yeah, really disappointed because I have trouble finding books that I really love. I'm not me a too. big reader of books. I mean, I'll read the Times every day and this and that. But the book yeah. was like I was like, ah, oh, shit, this book's over. Fuck. I was really enjoying uh, the way you wrote it. And the way you 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 were honest and and it was just funny. You, you had a lot of great lines and a lot of great thoughts in there. So again, I can't recommend it enough. Yearbook officially comes out tomorrow. It's available now for pre-order wherever books are sold. I think you'll really enjoy it. And it's uh, and Seth's uh, weed uh, company is going Fury, pretty strong. And he's doing house plant. Go to houseplant.com. You know, Our home goods are available com. nationwide. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about you and your wife. In a way, I don't know that you ever wanted kids or not, but nope. I'm glad you, you don't. I, I'm glad no. you don't have kids because I don't think you you are into so many things and so many projects. I don't think you would be able to give the time to being a good father. And, oh, no, I, for sure not. Um, or or I wouldn't be able to do all this work that I like. Um, no, I it's it's 100%. People are always like, and, and it's something I think I was uncomfortable answering this before, but they were like, how do you do so much? And, like, the answer is I don't have kids. Like, if people are like, how do you do pottery and write a book and make all these movies and TV shows? It's it's that I don't have kids. <laughs> well, because it, I have, all of this I have stuff nothing requ- else to do. <laughs> all of this stuff requires a tremendous amount of time and self-involvement. Yeah, and and you're sure. right not to have kids. Why put a kid through that if you don't have time for a kid? And Lauren's down with this too, right? She's okay. She doesn't want kids. You know, I would say she wants kids less than I do. <laughs> like, and if she had wanted to be talked into it, she's Seth, like, no. <laughs> would that have been a deal breaker in your romantic relationship if if she had really wanted a bunch of kids? Would it have been? No, something? that's the thing. Is no. like, I think I could wrap my head around it, but I think she's just like, uh, no. <laughs> 
Right. Which right. is great. We have so much fun. Like, I don't know anyone who gets as much happiness out of their kids as we get out of our non kids. Like, <laughs> we are, like, we're fucking psyched all the time. We're laying in bed on Saturday morning, smoking weed, like, watching movies naked, just being like, if we had kids, we could not be fucking doing this. Like, this is, well, like, there is no one whose child is giving them as much joy as we are right now getting because we do not have a kid. By the way, Seth, have you noticed how many couples who have kids have broken up during the pandemic. That yes, they, I know several of them. <laughs> yes. It's a tough, it's not an easy haul having kids. No. You cannot be, a, you can't be narcissistic. You have to give yourself no. over to parenting and uh, they've got to be the priority. Yeah, it's like, hard. I don't want that. Yeah, I want, I, right. yeah, I, <laughs> that's, that's, that does not sound fun to me. <laughs> All right, here's one final stat. And why? Set. There's enough kids out there. Who needs oh, there's so many. We need more, we need more people? Who looks at the planet right now and thinks, you know what we need? More fucking people. Like, that's what I, that is truly a confounding thing to me. What is it? Seven billion people on the planet right yeah. now? Seven billion? And we're pretty sure things are going to shit. Uh, exactly. Like, what? Yeah, look like, at what all these people are up to. Exactly, well, Robin. Like, it's like I picture like it's like I, I was thinking like like if I was like right now like if there was like robot overlords like you know like like hurting us into like the slave mines and my dad was still here I'd be like did you know this shit was coming when you had it? <laughs> like, I feel like they would have to be like yeah we kind of thought it might but we will you know we hoped it will we hoped you'd be the one that fixed it all. <laughs> Here's the final stat for the day. Seth has been coming on the show since 2008. Today is his 17th appearance, and I know everybody what? loves wow. him. Wow. We've, we've had 17 very intense conversations. Just I love so you that. Know. There's some people what, that I'm, uh, some of my very close family, I haven't had that many me <laughs> too. Those encounters, yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, and you can say that this is better. We're treating you better than Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, very good. Go watch, watch <laughs> the episode. Is all I, I got to go and watch it. And I'm going well, right to do it. because in, in like the same week, I did, I did David Chang's show, this breakfast, lunch, and dinner show. And like, we couldn't have got along better. It was like this wonderful trip in Vancouver. We smoked weed and ate in all my favorite restaurants. And I think like the same week, uh, the Seinfeld one came out. And my mother, I remember calling her being like, it's a really good illustration of you being very comfortable and you being very uncomfortable. <laughs> like in a, in a real like one to one comparison. <laughs> Wow. You know, uh, yes. So 17 appearances, certainly one of my favorites was when we were in L.A. and you and Snoop came in. Oh, man, Snoop. That was smoke. fucking great. Oh, was yeah. that fucking funny. That All was time so great. I smoked. Oh, after that appearance, I went to his trailer with him and smoked weed that was so strong I had to go oh. home and, and just, like, <laughs> like, just sit there for uh, a few Have hours. you seen him since? <laughs> No, but I actually think he, I, I think he's recording again for my audio book. I'm trying to get everyone oh, who great. I think would do it to do their actual voices for the audio book. So he, I think is record. I, last I talked, I was asking him to record some voices for some lines for my audio book. He's <laughs> such a character, that guy. And, and, and oh, God knows where, where does he get this fucking weed? I don't know. I mean, he's everywhere. He's, uh, if you're Snoop Dogg, the yeah. weed, weed is not hard to find. <laughs> right. Uh, it's unbelievable. It, it, it's really unbelievable. The book's unbelievable. You've lived an incredible life, and uh, you captured it well, and uh, congratulations on that. Thank and you so much for having me. I know how difficult it is to write a book like that. It's not easy. And uh, I remember reading it going, hmm, I'm a little jealous here because he did a really good job, and it's funny, and I was like, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, I don't That's know. All I got to go back. Is to make people I know jealous. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good My thing. My only That's goal a good is a sign. performer. <laughs> uh, so much well, I didn't get you to, so but uh, you can read about it in the book. Seth Rogen, he wrote a book called Yearbook, and uh, you can order it right now for pre-order, and tomorrow it goes on sale everywhere. So thanks a lot, Seth. Thanks for spending so much time with us. No problem. And it was a real pleasure. Good to see you guys. Good to see bye, you too. Bye. Bye. Seth Rogen, everybody. Like that guy. Like that guy. The book really is good. I really want you to read it, Robin. I'm gonna read it, and I'm gonna watch that show with Jerry Seinfeld too. I can't wait to see. <laughs> now I gotta watch that. <laughs> that sounds knowing, hysterical. Knowing how uncomfortable he was with Jerry makes it even better. I want to yeah. see it. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't wait till I see him tell that story about Jerry, you know, ruining his spot when he's going to audition and not even caring. Like, it doesn't even make an impression on him. No, 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 no. He tells him really well. The stories are told well in the book. And, uh, yes, that's been on the show like 17 times. I'll have him on whenever he wants to be on. That's great. I didn't even know that. It's always fun whenever he's here. Yeah, I actually was coming downstairs today to do the show and. I was. Uh, I open up the. I open up the Google thing, and it's like, oh, Seth Rogen talks about his relationship with James Franco. Blah 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 blah. You know, and I went, oh, he's promoting yeah. the book, it. and he was very honest. He said, you know, I was disturbed by this, and I didn't know what to do, and you know, it's kind of ended our friendship. And I was like, wow, that must have been painful. You know. Well, sure, absolutely. Anytime yep. you know you've had somebody in your life who. You know, you've had wonderful times with, you've, you know, done great projects with, you've hung out a lot, and they were friendly. They've come in here together. That's right. That's right. But uh, Seth wasn't thrown by any question when this interviewer asked him about it. And he was like, yeah, I'm I'm telling you, it's been very difficult for me. And, you know, he's a refreshing guy, and I always sort of admired his open. Yeah. Yeah, like he never lied about doing weed and, you know. He just seems very, yeah, very authentic. That's the, yeah. that's the word. I love the Nicolas wow. Cage thing too, because I always feel that Nicolas Cage is the strangest human being on earth. Well, yeah, because you always read like he's he's got a new marriage and he named his kid after Superman. He was Kalel, and uh, you know you just and then for a while he walked around like Elvis. Because I remember the time, yeah, he came into our studio. <laughs> he was dressed like Elvis. Yeah. I always thought, like, Nicolas Cage to me is a really good actor, and I just remember seeing him and Peggy Sue got married, and he chose this really weird voice. He did yeah. the whole movie like, hey, this is me. And, hey, <laughs> hey, Peggy Sue. And I was like, wow, that's fucking weird, man. That's that's out there for an actor. Yeah. Like, he put on, <laughs> and then, like, when I was reading Seth's book, I was like, wow. He came up with this character that Seth had said had nothing to do with his movie, didn't know what to do. <laughs> And then he just has to leave. Yeah. You know, that's the best. Yeah. You, you yeah. didn't like what I did. I got to go. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good stories. I couldn't get to all of them. Talks about Kanye West. Yeah, but, time with yeah. him. And, you know, it's a, he did a good job with the book. It's called Yearbook. All right. Well, we'll get back together tomorrow. We have plenty more to do. And so that's that. Uh, we might as well say goodbye, right? Well, I don't know what else we could do after uh, that. Are people still with us? They, you know, I'm they gonna, don't usually expect us to be on this lot. That's right. They think we left. <laughs> By the way, I, uh, yeah, I had to pee pretty bad for the last half hour. So 
I was almost going to go in my pants. So, <laughs> in honor of his story, <laughs> yeah, that, I was like, that doesn't seem like too. <laughs> he shit his pants. That doesn't sound like a bad idea right now. <laughs> All right, let's see you tomorrow. Bye.